Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about we do uh, what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour every day, a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your submitted questions. Second hour is typically a deeper dive into a topic, and we're all looking forward to today because today we're going to be discussing our recent Office Hours Cinegear coverage. We did four days uh, of live in L.A. at the equipment show and trade show, and we did... Uh, I think it was four hours of direct live-to-the-air coverage on that Saturday. So we're going to be talking about how it went, how we set it up, and everything about Cinegear happened on the lot at Paramount Studios. So we got to tour around some of old Hollywood's uh, massive sound stages. So it's really fun. But that's in our second hour for right now. We're going to dive into general Q&A. Mitch, what have we got? Thanks, Bill. First in, Andre Dole from Berlin. What issues could I run into if I update my M1 MacBook Pro from Monterey to Ventura for Zoom cuts? I'm using Audio Hijack, NDI, Unity, Zoom ISO, and a lot of different tools. And Andre Dudley, thank you for the question. Talak is going to start us off today. Talak? I'm, um, I'm not entirely sure. I haven't actually moved myself. I will be soon. Uh, but I know that a, a bunch of people on the um, uh, on the Liminal team who uh, are we're always constantly testing Zoom ISO, are using it on Ventura with uh, no issues. Nice. Javier? I have been using Ventura for, I think, two weeks now because I bought an M2 Pro Mac Mini that came with Ventura, so I stick with it and I'm trying everything. And it has been working great. I mean, from those tools, I've been using uh, Unity and all the Rogue Amoeba tools are working great. Uh, I've, I had some hiccups with the continuity, uh, then the camera and the continuity keyboard and like the, especially the mouse when you try to move it to the iPads, like some glitches, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Uh, so that part is still a little finicky, but uh, all the apps that I've run, run well. So I think go for it and just have a good backup so you can roll back if, in case something bad happens. Alex? Yeah, I, I upgraded the Ventura, and then uh, there was a Zoom update. I haven't gotten Ace to work again, <laughs> so I'm, I, I just haven't had time, though, I think. But that was the one thing that, and Ace is the, the underlying thing for loopback. So so it's been a little bit of a, you know, I, I haven't been able to quite figure out how to get it installed again, and I'm not sure. It, it could be a variety of things. Obviously, I have a computer with a lot of things on it. So um, there was a little bit of a glitch there, and so I'm, I haven't figured out how to get that. I just keep on failing on the installs so um so that's the that's the only thing that i that i had tr trouble with that i still haven't really recovered from chris fenwick pretty sure alex if you uh launch loopback or hijack and go to update that it will update ace for you uh, uh you know, it might be that, a set, that whole i have to go through the whole process of like um installing it back to the i mean it, it I have to like do the special install of Ace to get it to work again. It, it uh, I can't do it through Loopback. This, this, ladies and gentlemen, is why we're not doing the uh, audio lab because Alex is not ill prepared. It is. Uh, it, I, it's actually I, the big delay for the audio lab is me figuring out how to. I have to sit down. I need a couple hours straight to just like um, work on Ace. I have to the question. I have Ventura on a bare bones M1 Mac Mini. Uh, studio, uh, Intel, iMac, uh, I use loopback uh, of the stuff. I use hijack loopback. I don't use NDA. I use Unity. I use Zoom ISO. And I'm not having any problems with any of them at all. So uh, if you're lucky like me, you won't have problems. If your name is Alex Lindsay, you're in for a world of hurt. 
Yeah, I had modest problems, but I've managed to work through them all. So, yeah, sometimes these brand new operating system revs take some time to work out the bugs. Uh, next question. Fly? Next question in from Brian Osterhout in Oakland, California. My son, 18, has been asked to create a hype video. It's still unclear if he needs to shoot the video or if a camera or B-roll will be provided. I want him to be prepared. iPhone or GoPro? Accessories, tips, or tricks to make this awesome? Courtney, help us out. Well, there's a lot of unknowns in your question there. Hype video for what? What's he promoting? Uh, where, what is the target audience? Is it going to be on YouTube, TikTok, uh, Instagram? They all <clears throat> have different formats uh, as far as aspect ratio. So GoPro might be good because it has a good wide angle lens. And I just say in general, uh, you know, you could shoot it on an iPhone. I would suggest something more like a DSLR where you have a variety of lenses to get some nice long lens shots where you can compress the background and the foreground together or uh, make some unique angles or nice close-ups. Get a, uh, if you have a gimbal for your phone, if you're shooting with a phone or with a camera, um, you know, a smaller camera that uh, you could use a handheld gimbal to make nice smooth moves, make a lot of dynamic moves, cut those together, find some snappy cleared music to cut it to and, uh, and Bob's your uncle. Oh, yeah. Bob, Bob, Bob shoots for you. <laughs> Alex. Uh, if you can get an SLR, it's definitely, you can shoot a lot of great stuff with it. Most of the, if it's a hype video for social media, most people are expecting cell phones. And so, you know, you can get away with a lot in, from a cell phone perspective uh, to, to shoot that as far as how it looks and so on and so forth. And with the new cinematic modes in the iPhone, they're pretty good if you have a newer iPhone. One thing to think about are rigs. Um, I think that um, as Courtney said, a stabilizer, you know, DJI um, makes a great stabilizer that you can use. Um, that's going to get you some nice soft moves. Uh, the other thing to think about are, are hard cases like this. So this is a uh, this is made by Small Rig, um, and uh, you can put this on. This is a little little. You can uh, there's a lot of attachments. This is just one attachment here that that can kind of. Uh, this is very adjustable. You can kind of move it around and get things working on it. If you need audio. Uh, Ceramonic uh, makes this little guy here that um, will go lightning in and gives you two XLR outs or uh, no, so two XLR ins and then lightning in. Um, so those are some of the things that you might want to think about as far as um, that goes. Uh, ring, you know, the ring lights are actually pretty useful. They're not as useful for our studios, but they're actually pretty common in uh, social media um, stuff. So we want to think about that as well from a from a hardware perspective. Uh, larger ring lights are a lot bigger than the smaller ones. Uh, and I think that those are the, some of the key aspects of things that you might need, probably a tripod you know, to, to do some of the things that you're doing. Uh, things like time-lapse and, you know, uh, time-lapse is really useful. One thing if you want to do something special with time-lapse is don't shoot it at time-lapse, shoot it as video, and then take it into something that that you can do. You can use the in-between frames. And so a program like uh, the easiest one right now is After Effects. Hyperloop will do it as well. But After Effects will uh, let you um, build what we call time echoes. And that's going to give you long, um, you know, long motion blur that is using all the video frames in between each frame that you want to use to build those that motion blur. And it's uh, it's extremely effective at producing something that most people don't know how to do, which makes the hype video stand out. Chris Fenwick. So when I have a client come to me and they and the word hype gets into a description, I I realize pretty quickly. I'm sorry. I think my image is delayed. Uh, anyway. Uh, most videos want to tell a story. A hype video wants to tell a story that's strong on emotion. Uh, what I want to do is I want to know 
what your TRT is going to be. How long is it going to be? You're going to do like a little one minute Instagram story or, you know, a four minute music video. Uh, find your spine. The spine is the thing that every everything hangs on. Hype video, it's probably going to be, as Courtney said, a cool, a cool cut of music that you have uh, the ability to use. The specific imagery, in my opinion, the specific imagery, the specific shots are nowhere near as important as the overall gestalt or the feeling that is received after watching it all together. This is why I got into post-production. It's the edit, to me, is going to mean much more. I would rather have 30 fun, bad shots than one great shot. Okay? Because you can generate, you can, you can create energy and emotion with bad shots as long as you have a lot of them. Good shots don't, I'm not saying don't shoot good video. I'm saying what you really want is a lot of variety. That being said, you can get away with murder. You can shoot stuff with cell phones. You can shoot stuff with GoPros. You can shoot DSLRs. You can shoot anything you want. You can shoot with a potato. You could shoot a shot on a with a phone and then shoot that phone from another camera. Boom, bop, bop. And now you have like this inception moment where you get in. You can get away with murder. You want a lot of variety and a good spine to hang everything on. That's what I would do. Uh, Alex, you wanted to come back? Uh, the DJI uh, Mini Pro is pretty slick. You know, and so drone drone shots, time lapse, you know, those types of things are great ways to just, if you're doing a hype video, uh, those things and drone shots that are doing time lapse, <laughs> like all of those things, um, those are all things that just add a lot of perceived production value. And for high thought videos, for me, it's all about energy. So uh, shots that I would throw away for a corporate video are gold for me for high videos. And I try to do them handheld and try to keep things moving as much as possible. I like being off of things, coming onto things, and then going away from things. If you practice and are good at that so you can actually see what's that shot in the middle, something that swings in, establishes a look at something, and then swings away, gives you more energy than just sitting on the thing. So I have fun with hype videos. Those are that, that, That's a... A thing that I just feel like I'm free to go have some fun. Let's go to the next question. On to Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, asking, so if 3D video skills are being renewed, what other production skills have waned and then been rejuvenated during your career? Or what older skills would you like to see return to current productions? Fascinating question. Mitchell, start us off. Yeah, it's, it's kind of broad in nature, but it also has an arc to it, which is kind of fun. Um, I would say a... Classic film school um, lesson would be in order. And the reason for that is that the techniques that you use to shoot a film are still the same, regardless of the technology. So it might be good to do a refresher every now and then to uh, remind yourself what a, uh, the rules of uh, six are and things like that uh, so that you can do it. Because those things still are relevant today, no matter what you're using to shoot. Look. I've built a career off of working at a, a bunch of different venues with a bunch of different budgets and a bunch of di different intentions. And, and so for me, when I, I read this question like three times before I really understood it, that's a great question. But for me, I need to have a lot of older technologies in at hand because sometimes that's all I can use. Um, I need to be able to understand 
the brand the the most brand new moving lights the leds i also need to be able to deal with incandescence and sometimes in the same project so for me it's it's really important to have kind of a sense of the entire arc of the history of the technology that we work with because sometimes i will end up working with a Klieg light you know or something really annoying um the other thing that i um something that i really really uh would would say is the Arduino that sort of sits in my back pocket sometimes if I want to build something very very bespoke like a I, I at one point wanted to do wireless DMX candles and the kind of the kind of technology that that Arduino uh, provides us is great for that kind of thing it's not something I use every day but it I'll pull it out every once in a while to do something really bespoke Alex yeah, and, and when I'm when you say 3D video, I'm assuming you mean stereoscopic. Um, and so the uh, for stereoscopic, I'm glad that it sees it coming back because I put a lot of time into it a couple times now. There's been a couple waves of stereoscopic, and I've gotten to spend a lot of people's money and time figuring out how to do it. So I'm super excited that it's on its way back, uh, coming back around, so I can catch that train again. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think that 3D skills. Um, 360 skills are going to be important as you look at these scenery and 3D 360 is is a little bit of a thing. So um, so you're going to see more of that starting to come become more important. And a lot a lot of the last round that we did of this uh, didn't have nearly the set of tools that we have now. Like we learned a lot, um, you know, the in five years or maybe ten years ago, five years ago. Um, so we 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 got a lot under our belt to 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 take with that. The um, you know I think that I think old films you know film tricks I think are really useful. Uh, a lot of the rules that we've had in the past are largely ignored. Um, you know, jump cuts and jumping the line of direction and how things are framed. Uh, I think I, I really feel like I have to keep watching YouTube and watching TikTok to kind of keep up with the kids. Like, so I, less than taking old school um, uh, lessons, I have to take I have to take new school lessons. So I look at TikTok a couple, you know, solid 15, 20 minutes a day. And a lot of it's me tracking what is going on. Like, you just can't, if you're going to do production for this, you can't not know what that is, you know, and I think that that's why a lot of headsets are going to get sold. Apple will, will sell as many headsets as they can make because there's a lot of people like me that have to figure out how to make content for it. And so just us will buy the first year you know, of, of, of headsets, um, you know, of just people just trying to figure out what what's what. So I think that um, I'm really excited about interfaces. I think that I do think that I'm going to probably start spending more dedicated time um, programming. Uh, I've done little bits and bo bobs of programming, um, but we'll probably try to find ways to do classes and some labs and some second hours on on probably the the iOS, macOS, Vision OS kind of programming. You know, just getting off the ground uh, within the group because I think that we it will really help to be able to cobble something together. You know, like just just it's not. I'm going to build the final app that's going to be there. But I feel like what I need to be able to do is sit down and write something that I can throw a, a scene together, put some windows up and make it work without having to talk to anybody else about it and fiddle with it a little bit just to know what it takes to do it. Courtney? Oh, I've seen 3D come and go four times now in my lifetime. <laughs> and if you look away as, and look back, it's going to be gone again, so I don't. I wouldn't load up on 3D equipment again just because somebody's releasing a, some ski goggles that can generate 3D. Um, I'd say I like I like the older production values, uh, the old movies that are storyboarded and uh, have a single camera to shoot it, 
and it follows the action through the scene and its perspective changes as the actors move around the set. So the director comes to the set, he looks at all the angles that he can shoot, uh, decides where to put the actors and what's their motivation for moving around the room. And so he can recompose a single shot and follow it like a wonder is called. Those are nice to see in movies. I hate uh, quick cutting and action cutting and the effects of multi-camera that the effects that multi-camera has brought to uh, the film industry for the dramatic narrative where uh, we've got three cameras because they're so cheap. Let's use them. And so you end up with, Shots that you can't really utilize because the camera can't be a camera B can't be in camera a shot and so on. So it makes a lot of compromises. Compromises are made on lighting because of that shooting multi-camera. Cause you can't, you can light it great for camera a, but the lighting looks crummy on camera B cause they're off to the wrong side or they're shooting the wrong direction, et cetera. So I'd like to go back to single camera, uh, Film maybe, but nah, not necessarily. We really don't need to go back to film. Some directors think they do, but they really don't. It just makes things harder. Um, and uh, and the ability to block the scene correctly and you know make the camera movements motivated and not just you know manic. Get rid of shaky cam. I never want to see another shaky cam movie. All right, next question. Gordon Lake from Los Angeles, California questions, how many bots should you have for a remote production show to deploy screens like meters, multi-views, programs, etc.? Hmm, bots. Uh, so I was thinking back on, on, working on, on, on working with Tony on conversations with Tony Mobley. And to this day, the thing we're missing is, is a meter spot. And so I would say if you're doing a really simple show on Zoom, or even just a simple meeting, meters. There you go, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, I think there's a lot of things that we could put up there. So meters, also level history is really useful. I know that um, Juan, Carlos, Juan C. Carlos, Juan C. Robles is uh, is working on um, that some of those things now. Uh, so those, I think that these heads up, these um, you know, we have a slate that tells us what's going on. You know, who's doing what. For the show, which I think is very valuable, um, so you have the meters there, the, the 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 history. I think that there's announcements, so things that tell to tell us that are happening uh, and timing that we could put up as well. Um, so those are some of the things I I would put eventually put scopes in there, so we can see our you know we can even see scopes for every person going by or the program going by. Um, that's kind of helpful for us without what by putting those things in. It's not that a lot of us can't have scopes on our own. But by putting it into the system, it would allow us to um, essentially uh, not at not all. Of, we don't have to. Not everybody has to have that. By putting scopes in and just saying this is the program scopes going out, um, the anybody joining can see what their scopes look like without having to buy them or set them up or manage them. So I think that those are some of the things we're thinking about. Next question, Kyle Hammond from Chicago, Illinois. Is there a future-proof reason to get the Apple Watch 8 instead of the SE or 7? Is there a feature that might roll out in the future, updates that are only possible with the 8? Alex, your thoughts? Uh, we're too close to the release of the next watch. Do not buy one right now. <laughs> like that's, my, that, that's what I would say is that the next watch will come out in the, typically uh, with the iPhone. So the next watch is in September. Once you get past you know, six months before, in my opinion, you shouldn't buy a new Apple product when you know when they're going to be released. 
um, there's probably going to be significant upgrades to the to the next uh, watch. And so I probably uh, wait for one more pass. Chris Fenwick. I wanted to show you this real quick. If people don't know about this, they really should. I'm trying to frame a screen here for you. It's called it's on the Mac Rumors website. There's a tab over here called Buyer's Guide. And if you click on this Buyer's Guide thing, it takes you through all the different types of products. So there's Macs and phones and bears on my. So if you click on say Macs and then you come down here and it says Okay, the Mac Pro is a buy now. This has the days since the last release. It gives you the average number of days between releases and when those actual releases were. And you can see here was here was the big one. The 2013 took uh, 2,100 days uh, before a release. And if so, if you go back up here and you go to your phones, or no, you were asking about watches. Boom. So there's the thing about watches and TVs and stuff. And you can see how long it's been. It's a great way to sort of gauge because it'll say caution, don't buy something might, might be on the on the horizon, or if it's green, it just means, yeah, it's, it's relatively new product. It's a good time to buy it. So, so what does it if, say now about the watch? Uh, let's see. It says, uh, approaching end of cycle. Yeah. So there you go. It's a caution approaching end of cycle. I will say that when the, uh, Mac pro was at 2,100 days, I think it was flashing red, like absolutely don't, don't buy, but yeah. it's, it, it's a great way to kind of get a, uh, and, and and here's the thing: if you need something, and it's going to make you money, buy it. If it's if you want something, it's a good idea to check this first. Yeah, and I would say that you know one of the things the watches are moving more and more constantly toward the health area. Uh, Apple has spent a lot of investment in that, and so whether it does the next monitoring thing, that's something I always keep my eyes on. If you're in a category where you need blood pressure monitoring or you need EKG or whatever it is, they're going to eventually come up with. Uh, you would feel bad about buying one before it had something that you felt you needed. Courtney, you had a thought. Yeah, under the line of everything old is new again, the next Apple Watch is going to be a sundial on your wrist with a compass built in. So you can just orient it the right direction and then tell what time it is. Requires no batteries at all. Auto compassing. Million day life. <laughs> Don't ever have to recharge. And David Baskin, bring us back to reality here. Oh, no chance of that. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I have not, this is the one Apple product I haven't gotten. And, and I think that I've hesitated because I'm a big blob of never get out of my chair and do any exercise. And it feels to me like was just said that this Apple watches or Apple watches in general are really focused on fitness. Can someone convince me that I need this if I'm never going to use the fitness pieces of it? Yeah, it, well, it is basically just a computer on your wrist. So fitness is one of the areas where it excels because they put a lot of effort into that. But it's not the only one. I mean, you know, I think the interconnection between your phone and your watch, I'm often driving and I will feel a little tap on my watch and I'll look down and I have some alerts set and it'll tell me that someone has called me. And so maybe it's the time to pull off the road and determine whether or not uh, to return that call. There's a whole bunch of interactive features like that. If you're in the Apple ecosystem, it is beautifully plumbed into the whole Apple ecosystem for you. Chris, you had other thoughts? Yeah, David, just just say no. You, it's okay. You don't have to own that. That was the most, uh, dare I say, pathetic. Like, please, 
tell me why I need to buy it. You don't need to buy it. If you've lived this long without the watch, you probably save the money. You don't need to buy it. You have a religion. That should be your religion. Apple should not be your religion. I think walk away. Walk away from the Apple store. I think for me, the, the, the main thing is, is that I, while I, I don't use most of the features that the watch has, I would never go back to another watch and I would never not have a watch. So it's one of those things that it's, bec- it's one of those, yeah, I know, <laughs> but I, you know, so I, um, uh, for me, I use the timer probably more than anything else. I just use the timer all the time. Yeah, but I have to carry my, like I have this little thing on my, on my hand that I can do this with without my phone. I, I can walk around with it. I buy things with it. You know, I use Apple, Apple Pay, you know, with it. I can do things like if I turn off my, you know, if I, uh, if I turn off all my lights like this, you know, I can go onto my watch and go, oh, I, I just want to run lights up and it will um, hopefully turn it all back on. Or this is going to look really bad. Yes. Yeah, so there we go. So like, yeah, so when I walk into my office, I just tap on my, on my, uh, on my watch and it all turns back on again. <laughs> so, so anyway, the, um, uh, so there's a lot of, um, uh, of those kinds of things that it ties enough. It's not that it's the best thing in the world. It ties enough together uh, that, that no. it would be very hard for me to give up at this just, point. And just say no. <laughs> just so you know. But it's, it, again, I, I would say that it, you know, because I had pretty good watches before, not nearly as expensive as the, the watch that I have now. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I used most, I used those up a lot. Um, you know, citizen, you know, Navahawks and stuff like that. And, and this one is, uh, uh, I use it all day and it definitely feels like something's missing when I, when the battery runs out. <laughs> so I keep it charged every morning while we're doing the show. I usually have it charging to make sure that that never happens. Preto will give you the last word. David, I'm just like you. I'm all things Apple and I've not bought the watch until they have glucose monitoring on the watch. Then it will be super useful. There you go. All right. Next question. From Liberty White in Atlanta, Georgia. Liberty asks, there are reports that LinkedIn is going to test ads during streams. What are your thoughts? Alex, start us off. It'd be great if they made the stream better before they started putting ads into it. I mean, you know, I'm just like, it's just, it feels like someone, it feels like someone like hacked in a MVP into LinkedIn. And it, it has been this way now for how many years? Eight years, uh, you know, or, or seven years. And there just has been so little progress in the platform. And now they're going to put ads into it. And I don't know how many people are actually watching. Like they took the, you know, they took the viewership out. You know, like you can't see the, now people are doing lives and there's no like how many people are watching anymore because there's just, I just, you know, I don't know. Sure. But I guess I feel like you, you'd want to polish the product before you put ads into it. That's my only, my only two cents. I just see a lot of, I, I'm interested in LinkedIn. I think it would be. I think it's potentially a great market to stream into, and I keep on feeling like eventually it will look nicer. And I just haven't seen them turn that that corner. Mitchell, yeah, I agree with Alex. Uh, I just what I need another distraction while I'm trying to figure out what somebody's saying on LinkedIn. You know, somebody could be on a roll of saying the meaning of life, the universe, and everything is. And here comes the ad for uh, you know ShamWow, Courtney. I think it's just another reason not to join LinkedIn. I I opted out of LinkedIn very early on when I found out it was so needy and I'd keep getting 23 emails a day popping up. So-and-so LinkedIn wants to wants you to join their circle. So-and-so LinkedIn. I just went uninstall and I haven't gone back. David Paskin. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all because it's similar, I think, to, to Courtney. All I get from LinkedIn is ads. It, it feels like. It feels like all I get is 
companies cash in when they pay better. Here's why. What does it take to feel? I mean, I didn't ask to see these things, uh, and and that's all I get in my feed. So now maybe that's user error. Maybe I haven't set up my feed correctly, but it, the user experience is is for me has been filled with that. So I'm not surprised. Alex, you want to report, return? Yeah, I, I I will say that I I do think that LinkedIn for me is the most useful social network that I'm on. Um, I've probably connected to. 4,000 people and there's kind of a constant flow of, of uh, information. Um, that's how I can contact almost anybody I need to in the industry at this point. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of people are pretty aggressive. Like if you're in, in what I do, you get into a meeting and by the end of the meeting, you've been sent invites from like half the people in the meeting. <laughs> you know, that's that, I mean, people who know what they're, so if you, you know, and, and I usually accept all of those and I don't reach out that often to connect to folks. I do a couple of times every once in a while, but um, I find it to be super useful, um, you know, to, you know, for me. So I think that LinkedIn is great. I've now I've been using it since almost day one, not quite day one, but, but pretty early on. So I've been doing it for a long time. Um, and it definitely, um, if you nurture it like anything else, if you nurture your existence there, uh, you definitely get a lot of people connecting to you and a lot of opportunities show up because you're very highly rated and you're very this and you're very that, but it takes years. It's not something you turn on. Most things that are valuable are not things you turn on and then they work. Um, I've spent the last uh, probably nearly 20 years, you know, on LinkedIn, just kind of not, not really focusing on it, but definitely paying attention to it. And that moves us to the next question. From Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, Paul asking zoom can now give you AI summaries of the meetings you've missed uh, meeting host can send summaries to users through email or Zoom team chat. Comments? Start with David Paskin. We looked at this a little bit on uh, the Zoom test kitchen uh, this past Friday. Um, I am afraid to turn it on because I'm concerned that I'm going to really like it and it's eventually going to become a paid feature. And, and I'm not sure that I want to fall in love with something that I'm going, that I know I'm going to have to pay for. Um, I will say uh, two comments. One is uh, the predecessor to this, I believe sort of the predecessor, which was kind of the smart recordings or the smart transcriptions where it would automatically give you chapters and you could jump around to things and search the transcription, bring it to the video, to that spot in the video. I was really impressed with that. Uh, it was a really nice experience. The second thing I'll say, though, is that um, the the whole sending summaries to users or next steps, my one concern about that is that I, I don't like anyone to automatically send anything. I, I want to see what's going out, uh, be able to edit it, and and then press the yes, please send this button. So as long as that safeguard is in there, I would, uh, it's a very compelling product, I think. Javier. Yeah, I think it's very, uh, it could be very helpful to have like something like uh, in every meeting that's catching all like what everything everyone says, because sometimes when you are in a meeting, you say something and then when you try to recall it, different people in the meeting like got it different. And if you can have like this, no, no, you said this because of this, like all of that context. And sometimes you can set someone to take notes in the in the meeting, but it's like very common that the one that's taking the notes is the like the bottom of the food chain that's someone that doesn't have any context from the other projects and anything. So if you have like this entity that sits in every meeting and has context of everything that's going around in your organization or your team and everything, 
yeah, I think you can do better summaries. I'm agree with David, like nothing should be like automated, like send this and get this, but like someone has to filter it. But like having like an, let's say intelligent uh, uh, entity that's listening to everything and like organizing and can have like give more context because if you receive the summary, if you didn't attend the meeting and you just get the summary and you just get the bullet points, you won't get anything. But if you can like ask the the the, the AI, like, okay, why did they tell it? Where are we coming from this? It's how is it related to this other thing that we say in last week's meeting? I think that's where the the strength gets. But I think that's for sure is going to be a paid service. Tlaluk and Ronnie are just uh, in hold for just a second, so I can tell you, don't forget, you can still continue to ask questions and vote on those questions in the back end. That's what drives the show, so please do so. So now, Tlaluk. Yeah, I think this is a super interesting uh, product. I haven't heard or spoken with anybody who's actually tried it or used it, so I'm excited to hear what folks find about it. Um, I think that it is important to realize that it is an it is a large learning model as AI according to the paperwork there and you you've got to be cautious about how it's being utilized and what um you know what what is your meeting about and where is that information going so just keep that in mind and uh, but I think it would be really really interesting to figure out if there was a way for all of us to uh, or the test kitchen to really take it for a test spin and kind of get a sense of what it does and whether or not it could be helpful in particular situations. Rami. Yeah, and also if it's multi-language, uh, that would be really nice to know from uh, us people coming from other uh, non-English speaking countries. Um, so that's a uh, really good idea. Courtney. Yeah, I think this is a great idea, especially since a lot of meetings are move, moving to the hybrid version, like uh, union meetings or corporate meetings, annual meetings, uh, that used to be conducted in person, you know, shareholder meetings that used to be conducted in person are now open to Zoom. We'll have a Zoom uh, uh, part of them. And so it would be nice if this AI could generate a what used to be done by the recording secretary who used to record the minutes of a meeting and used to be able to get the minutes, which is a summary of all the salient points and things that were passed during the meeting. Uh, and if it could do that and eliminate the recording secretary and give you a very cogent summary of everything important that was discussed and the order in which it was discussed and who brought it up and who answered it, and who voted on it, et cetera, uh, that would be very handy to have. So I, I see it as a good thing. Let's go to the next question. From Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California. One of my primary roles is to recruit and train volunteers for our house of worship do you have a YouTube video that would you would recommend that is a level one beginner primer for a camera operator, not camera controls, but focus on composition? Alex. Yeah, the um, uh, so there's a church that does these and I just can't find, I couldn't find it. I was trying to search for it on YouTube. They do these really high quality training and it's obviously designed for their volunteers. <laughs> so they, they put these up and they're super high quality. They're about like how to use a, a carbonite switcher and how to use this and how to do that. And, and, and I just can't quite, I can't, I'll try to find it and post it in the, in the link, but um, it, they put a lot of effort into it. And so that might be one to look for the, the main things that, that what really drives camera operators to do well is a strong TD and just having them do it, you know, like, like, and so, um, there's a couple things that I, you know, I tell people is, you know, 
When I say nose room, it means you need to have more room in front of the person's face than behind it. So don't center them. Always have them a little on one third or another um, when you're doing it. Unless it's straight on, I want a little bit of nose room. So I want it to be, I want their head to be in one side of the frame, not all the way to side, but just on that line. So I, I explain that that that's what I that's what I'm looking for. I explain what a head and shoulder shot is. I explain what a waist up shot is, and I explain what a wide shot is. And then I mostly tell them that I'm going to then drive you to get things done. And so I'm, you know, and I teach a lot of people how to do this. And I'll, I'll sit there and TD the first, you know, couple hours. And I'll be like, camera one, camera one, I need you to get closer, 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 closer. Move, 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 move. Now give me some more headroom. Okay, hold that shot. Ready, camera one, go camera one, not camera two. And, and, and it's slow. It feels slow as you do it. And, and what you do is you do that during rehearsals. You do that during other things where you get them used to like, this is what I'm going to ask you for. And this is, and, and. I have found that I can have them watch a bunch of videos, but it's not going to replace it, it, it. The videos make very little difference. Like it just, like they can watch the videos, but until they're on that camera and, and they're being pushed to, to perform um, at an event, at a, at a house of worship, at a, any place that I've gone to train people to do it, the best thing to do is get some people up on stage, get some people sitting around in the crowd and get them to hunt the way that they need to hunt. Because a lot of it's muscle memory. They have to learn that, you know, on this camera, when I go this way, it's going to focus in. When I go this way, it's going to focus out. When I, you know, they got to, they'll start to feel that camera or if they have controllers, which is even better. But the point is, is that it's muscle memory. So much of it's muscle memory of what they're doing. And there's, and you can have them watch a video, but the best thing to do is just get them behind cameras and get them moving, you know? Um, and, and I, I find that I can get someone, I mean, I've gotten folks to produce shows that are pretty close to anything else I've seen in a corporate event at, with four hours of training. You know, like it's, you know, four hours of prep um, and just just pushing hard, you know, on them to do that. And it's really good if the TD doesn't, isn't in the same room as they are so I can be forceful. Go, 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 go. <laughs> like, I need you to get here. I need you to get here. Move over here. That's, that's the thing you want to think about. But uh, it doesn't take much if, if someone... And then, and then and they get a lot better after that. You know, like it's not, it's not how it ends. It's just where it begins. Next question. From David Paskin in Miami, Florida, David asks, what is the benefit to having integrated PCI cards like on the Mac Pro as opposed to using a Sonic box? Mitch is going to start us off here, Mitch. Um, speed can be a difference. Um, for example, if you have one of the newer optimized um, SSD PCIe cards uh, in the new MacBook Pro, it's going to be faster uh, plugged into the Mac Pro, then it will be going through a Sonic box and then over Thunderbolt uh, to uh, make its thing happen. But um, the other thing is that I think less points of failure would be my vote. If you need more than a couple of cards instead of having multiple Sonic boxes to deal with, it's all kind of neat and tidy if you can do it inside of your uh, uh, Mac Pro. Alex Lindsay. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, the main thing is is that you have a lot more bandwidth. You know, like so you're you're going to have you know, you can now put in those two cards. Right now we take up, you know, two of, you know, if I'm doing a, if on my studio, I've got two lanes, right? And so now I'm going to take up both those lanes for if I want 16 outputs. In, the, in, in this case, I can just put two cards in and I still have eight lanes left over in the Mac Pro to do whatever else I wanted to do. I still have four more card slots. And so, you know, if we start to harangue uh, Zoom. I don't know if we know anybody at Zoom, but if we start haranguing Zoom for 300 megs a second instead of 100 megs a second, um, then we could theoretically have a box that would generate 48 outputs from those cards. Um, and you know, so or we could put you know put those other. I could put storage in those cards. So if I want to record all those all that stuff, 
I can be routing that and, and putting it in. And, but you could, and why would, and someone's going to go like, why would you need 48 outputs? And the reason you need 48 outputs is if you're doing an event where you're putting a bunch of people on a wall, you're putting, you, you can, you know, you, we can keep on grabbing on to, it could be transformational because you can do more than 48. You could do up to 96 or even 112, I think, is the number that you could if you used up all of those lanes across the top and all of the things. But you'd probably be using some of those for monitors. So like if on a Mac Pro, I'm going to buy a Mac Pro and it's because I want to push this as far as I can where I want to see how many can we put in there, but how many monitors can we put out? And so now imagine like Blue Melnick's setup. He has one Mac Pro or two Mac Pros, probably primary backup, running all of those, you know, all of the screens and, and you have Unreal or Unity or whatever flowing people around and moving them and going full screen and moving them in and out and everything else and having all of that access. Right now, we're still grabbing like whole screens at a time because, you know, we don't have that with Zoom ISO. And so I think that there's a lot of, uh, those are the kind of things that you're going to be able to do that you can't do right now in the, in the smaller, in the sonnet boxes and the sonnet boxes start to stack up and it really doesn't actually save you a lot. I mean, the sonnet boxes like to have one you because really you got to get to a point where we you know the boxes are fine but they're kind of cobbled together when you're doing production you want it to all be rack like i'm the, the one that i get i'm probably going to get a mac pro with that's rack mountable like <laughs> i just put it into a rack and call it a day you know and so um which is what we wanted for i don't know since the cheese grater came out we were like why can't we make this rack mountable and some people did they cut the ears off and just shoved them in um but i think that uh I, it's not for everybody. You're 100% right. It's the same power as a Mac Studio. It just has eight lanes of Thunderbolt and six cards. Like that's the only distinction between it and the and the other one. And for people like me, gold. For almost everybody else, 99% of the world, not useful. Mitch, you had a quick follow-up. Yeah, it, real quick is that some PCI cards uh, require more bandwidth than others, depending on what you're using it for. So if you had a slow PCI uh, card that you were using in a sonnet box, it probably would serve you fine. But uh, Alex is 100% correct. You, you need to manage uh, how you spread the load across the whole system. Next question. Next question from Eduardo Augustine in Panama. What is the progress in your Telestrator app? I noticed the other day you have an in integration with Stream Deck to change colors. This seems amazing. We want to know more. I mean, this is for you, Alex. So close. There's a couple little things that I'm, we're still niggling with that poor uh, uh, Juan has to deal with with me with it. I just uh, I just want to fix a couple little things that we have there. But overall, it's it's really great. I mean, we uh, it's just keystrokes. It's not like it's you know I didn't there's nothing built for the Stream Deck to do this. So you have this, but I can just hit you know I just have buttons now that I can and I've colored the buttons and so I know what color I'm going to get and um, and then I can do you know thicker and thinner and so you know they're just little buttons that are that are in there and so it. It's uh, it's working really well. It works really well on the Mac. Um, the, the the iPad one has some has one little drawing thing that I'm trying to sort out, uh, and I'm I'm super happy with it. <laughs> like it's like a, it's it's kind of like a little dream. Uh, and and as soon as we get this last, I I have to admit that I I've worked on it for so long, and then and Juan has done so much good work. I just want to be. There's just a couple little things that I know that I'll be happy if I can just get those things fixed. And so um, so it's, it, once we get those um, those working out. We'll, we'll, we'll release it. It's very close down now, though. And Juan's Next done an incredible question. job putting it together. Next question. Samuel Nordvik in uh, Norway asking, if bandwidth is not an issue, what is the highest bit rate that it makes sense to use for 1080p 60 frames per second streams in YouTube? 
any advantages or disadvantages of going over their recommendations. Ronnie. Oops, you're muted, Ronnie. Uh, I would say the sweet spot going uh, to YouTube uh, for 1080, um, 16 is up to nine as per recommendations. Uh, we normally use around seven, seven, seven point five, uh, and of course, if you're going 4K, you have to increase up to 50. And I've seen no change if we go over; it's uh, it's useless uh, bandwidth. Alex, yeah, uh, we. I, I encode the same way for YouTube as I do my top um, ladder. So if I, I build HLS ladders myself, so a lot of times for other things that I've done, we build the ladders ourselves. And so we have two 1080Ps and a 720P or two, and then a 540 and then a 360 and then a 240. And so I know what I want out of that. And I don't really change the top layer. And for the top layer at 60, um, at 30, I do um, 1080P 30. Uh, I do six... Six megs a second, so I do twelve for the for the um, you know for the sixty because it's twice as much bandwidth, um, and so so those are the things that I think of now. I don't go much past fifteen. Uh, now I'm also oftentimes leaving headroom there for ten you know ten bit HDR other things that I'm putting into those things, and so I have a little bit of headroom there for that. Um, for excuse me for four um, K, I don't think you get anything above sixteen megs a second. I don't think that YouTube doesn't. Remember, it's always transcoding everything. Uh, when I do 4K myself, the top the um, uh, the top ladder is either 24 or 36 megs a second. Like I put a lot of bandwidth. I throw a lot of bandwidth down the path. The your, um, If you're handling HLS, I've got a bunch of ladders. If you can't handle it, then go back to something. It, it'll automatically drop down to 16 or 10 or whatever. So I don't... I can just give you one... I'm just putting something in the manifest that says, "Hey, if you can take this, it's going to look awesome." <laughs> like, you know, and so at this at this level, and then I'm going to throw you know smaller ones in if your if your uh, player can't handle it or if your bandwidth can't handle it. Courtney, yeah, I would uh, I would follow the recommendations, which is for 1080p is uh, eight megabits per second for 24, 25, or 30 frame rate, and uh, 12 megabits per second for up to uh, up to 60 frames per second if you want to have 1080p 60 uh you can upload 12 because anything else anything above that is just going to be thrown away on the transcode and it's going to take longer and offer more latency if you're trying to do live streaming uh so uh, it, it, it actually it won't affect it the latency it, 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 doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't affect the latency and it also um yeah the, the transcoding does get a little like very small it will get better if it has more bandwidth. We've tested it not by little amounts, but we've gone, hey, I'm going to give you a 12 meg per second 1080p, and I'm going to give you a 30 meg per second 1080p. And the 30 meg will look a little nicer because it gives it more to claw into um, when it does the transcode. And so, so it's not, but the is the but the ROI is not there. Like so the so it's it is right. better when we do when we're testing it with like test signals. So it, like when we're putting like ocean waves into it. The thirty down to the what YouTube does looks better than the twelve down, um, yeah, you know. So we can see that, but on an average stream, you're one hundred percent correct. The, the ROI drops off pretty fast. It also depends on your encoder. If you yep. have a dual pass encoder going up, you can get just as good a quality off the twelve as you could off of a thirty with a crummy decoder. So you have to take that yeah. into account. Yep. Encoder, Ronnie, you wanted to come back? Yeah, uh, it's the same as Courtney just said. Uh, 
remember to use the correct encoder. It's much more quality to get from, from changing the encoder from a bad one to a good one uh, than in the increased uh, bandwidth. Let's go, to, uh, let's go to the next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, asking, when does technology become a distraction in production? Outside of the crew staring at their phones, is there a big issue? And we'll start with Tlaloc. Yes, I think there is a big, big issue. I think um, you maybe will hear this as a little bit of a broken record from me, but you got to look at the story and the content first. Doesn't, it, you know, the, the, the technology needs to serve that rather than serving the technology. And I get in trouble with this, like, oh, there's a brand new thing. We want to use it. Let's put it up there. But do we need it? Right. And um, <clears throat> I think let the content drive it and then let that technology, which there's a lot of, and it's great, but let it, let it serve that. Javier. I completely agree with Laloc. Uh, the, the biggest problem that I've seen is the misuse or distraction is that trying to do everything like it, technology makes it so easy to try different things and do not commit to all of them and like try to like put on a screw with a hammer, let's say you, you can try like every sort of things and like not getting lost where's your true north. That's very important. Like there are productions where the, the whole uh, theme of the production is let's try things like with the things we did with the HDR and the 5.1 that there were tests that was the 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 point of the production but when the production is like this content this record this movie this whatever this commercial you have to keep uh, straight and and the, get the the use the technology that helps you achieve that task and not try a lot of things so don't get distracted with technology because we love to do different things but we have to learn to use them Alex yeah uh when you talk to people who do, when they're starting out in production, sometimes when they still are doing production, they get really caught up with, let's do the new thing. Let's, let's figure out how to do this. This is really exciting and everything else. Now, you'll see me do a lot of that when I'm doing something that I'm not getting paid for. But anybody who's worked with me, when I get paid, I get super conservative about what I'm doing and will do only things that I think will absolutely work. I can't, I don't jump into anything that I can't imagine how it's going to actually work. Um, so I'm very, very careful. And really what I focus on a lot for main events is how people feel. You know, so I'm using technology to, I want to know how does the speaker feel? How does the audience feel? How does the, you know, how do people feel about the event? And I'm much less worried about what I can do and more about, I need to, if I'm getting a new piece of technology, it's because I feel like it's going to make someone else feel better. The speaker is going to have more information. The stream will, I will tell you something. I'm not trying to put technology into it to, to add technology. I am trying to tell a story and I'm using that technology to do that. And when I do that, I fiddle a lot and I practice a lot with it. I don't throw something on the, I drive people crazy because some on the day of the event that they'll think of things that are a better idea, 100% better than what I planned. And I still won't do it. <laughs> like I won't, you know, like I, I still like, I'm just like, that's for the next event because there's a, there's a series of, of uh, variables that are, that I don't, that I can't manage uh, in real time and I can't afford for it to fail. Next question. Uh, I'm sorry. No, let's go down to Courtney and then Ronnie, and then we'll go to the next question. Courtney. Uh, yeah. Technology can be a boon or it can be a anchor around your neck in production. Uh, I've seen a lot of Productions come to a halt when they're using, they decide to use a robotic camera to do this move and they do a complex move. And then somebody trips over a wire with a custom connector soldered on the end of it. Nobody's got a replacement and the production shuts down for an hour and a half while somebody has to drive to the camera rental house to get another 
custom wire to get the production moving again. So things like that, you got to watch out for with the high tech stuff. And a lot of times also technologies compete with each other. If you put them together for the first time, you may have a camera who has a a new camera you're using and your electronic dimmers on your lights uh, conflict with the shutter on the camera. It doesn't have a global shutter. And so it's creating, you know, irregularities or flicker in the image it can slow you down immensely and it can take a long time to troubleshoot uh, if you don't have very knowledgeable people about the technology that they're using. So, Ronnie? Oops, you're muted. Yeah, try, try to avoid using new equipment, uh, definitely. And uh, we have a client uh, which always uh, try to focus on the work that has to be done by the people in front of the camera. And they, they tend to ask us just, can you remove those microphones? Uh, the camera uh, you have there is a little bit too big. Can we use a smaller one? So um, they are very focused on the, the task being done rather than the technology. So uh, that's also good to think of. Tali, can real quick? Just coming back um, real quick to say, also make sure you can afford the technology you want to try. Because the truth of the matter is there are lesser expensive pieces of equipment that proclaim to have that particular kind of a technology that don't do it well. So you got to be able to afford the technology that you want to use in a way that will be stable and work. Next question. From Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. Henry wants to know, how can you check if your USB bus is overloaded? Say testing a capture dongle and a stream deck on adjacent ports. Ronnie? I'm not sure how you test it. Uh, I would love for the for the panel to to pitch in here. Uh, but what I've seen is uh, a lot of uh, these um, chips that are in some of the, uh, uh, especially Ethernet to to USB uh, conversions, are really uh, getting hot or problematic when you have used them for some time. So test this only not uh, uh, instantly. You have to test it for a while to see if it uh, is stable. Under load. Uh, Courtney Gooden. Well, it depends on whether you're talking about overloading the data bus or the power. Uh, if you're talking about power, you can get you one of these little meters, which are really great. They just plug in. They have all kinds of USB-C, USB-A, and uh, they don't have any USB-B, but uh, micro C and A inputs on them. And they have a nice little full color meter with a uh, charts and graphs that will chart the power consumption. It'll tell you how many amps are flowing through this and how many it's pulling. Uh, and so you can tell whether anything that's connected up to it is charging a battery or just drawing uh, more current than the port can supply. Uh, so that's a handy thing to have uh, to concerning whether you're really drawing too much power from the port. It won't tell you much about the bandwidth if you're overloading your USB bus, though. We're getting pretty close to our second hour here, but let's see if we can catch in a couple more questions. Uh, next question. Talalik Lopez-Waterman and Brevard, North Carolina, asking, how many USB pipes would actually be too few to get the kind of work we do in production? Alex. You can't have enough um, to do everything you want to do. You always just kind of, it's, it's kind of like you never finish a production. You just run out of time. Uh, and so, uh, so anyway, so in the same case, I, I, I fill up all my USBs all the time. And then I just go, oh, now I need to think about what I put on a hub and what I put on something else and everything else. But there's, not en- there's never enough. Um, but I think that I would consider two a minimum, you know, to, to have in a computer because one's going to be a hub at that point. Um, but I, but I prefer to have as many as I can possibly fit into a computer. Um, I, I know that my, 
uh, right now my Mac Studio has a lot of USB-C and USB-A hubs. I think everything's filled. Like every uh, connection in my Mac Studio except for the card reader <laughs> has something in it. So, um, so I think that that's, that's always the, the trouble. Let's go to the next question. Samuel Nordvik in Norway asking, can you explain how shutter angle works related to shutter speed? Uh, Alex. Yeah. So shutter angle is a, is shutter speed is a, is a hard number and shutter angle is a percentage of the, of your frame rate. So, uh, usually what happens is, is that a 360 sh- shutter is the same as your frame rate. A 180 is twice your frame rate or more half, half the time as your frame rate. Um, and so usually you leave it on a, on a, on a, um, your shutter angle, you usually leave it on angle because if you're changing frame rate, you want that angle to keep on changing with it. So 360 would be the same. And so if you do a, if you're one, if you're doing 60 frames a second and you have a 360 shutter, then you're going to have 60 frames. You're going to have one sixtieth of a shutter, um, and that's going to have more motion blur than we're used to seeing. Um, if you do what, what we're used to seeing generally is a 180 degree shutter. Uh, now, in what the, in, uh, what we like when you see saving Private Ryan, it looks a little stuttery. It's because they're using a 90 degree shutter because that's what was used in in uh, World War II. It gives more time for the, a 90 degree shutter gave the film advance more time to get from one place to the other. So in the rugged cameras, it gave it just a little bit more time to work with as it, as it went from one to the next. So they're 90 degree shutters. Um, now, where it gets complicated is we're going to start throwing away frames. So for instance, when we have someone that we're working with that is shooting, um, you know, let's say, uh, you know, they, they might be shooting 60 frames a second, but we're going to stream at 30 because we know that YouTube only streams at 30. We might have 60 frames a second at 360 degree shutter because we're throwing away half the frames. It will be a little bit more motion blurry for three for um, sixty frames a second, but at sixty frames a second, almost nobody notices. Same thing with one twenty. We do one twenty. We we tend to do um, uh, three sixty. For some reason, it just looks a little bit better at one twenty with a three sixty shutter speed than than with the one eighty. Because we have to remember that's kind of arbitrary. It's not like it's our eyes. <laughs> you know, so you have to figure out what makes sense. On our, and and so it also means that we can reinterpolate the frames. We can go from one twenty to twenty four, thirty, sixty. And reinterpolate those frames without losing, um, uh, you know, without losing, uh, we're having stuttering in that in that those rebuilt frames. Talalo, uh, no, I'm sorry, I, I'm on the wrong place, and this is my mistake. I was trying to get ready for the second hour, Ronnie. Yeah, and uh, for shooting high frame rates, you should really be aware of having the uh, correct uh, shutter. And we also tend to tell our apprentices to use the uh, shutter angle because, as Alex just said, it follows the the frame rate. So if you change frame rates throughout the the film session, it will automatically be correct. And please make sure that you have the right one when you are shooting high frame rates. Courtney? And if you're shooting film, you can't do a 360-degree shutter. You're probably limited to 72 as the minimum. Uh, I mean... Um, so cute. Sorry, 100, 128. Because the film has to be pulled down and registered before, so, the, next, before the next frame comes out. How so retro. <laughs> Let's how go to retro. the next question. I live in a film world. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, Moog Music was recently purchased by InMusic, the owner of Akai, Rain, and M-Audio. Considering their unique selling point has been U.S. manufacturing and employee ownership, do you think this is a slow death of the brand? 
Let's go to Courtney. Oh, I don't think so. There's a lot of uh, corporate buyouts over the years of of specific uh, businesses that have gone on. You know, I mean, Panavision is owned by Revlon for, you know, for God's sake, for a long time. So a lot of companies are owned by uh, just hedge funds. Uh, and so you, you may worry about that. But this particular uh, company of in music is their their holdings are mainly in the music area, so I think it's a good fit for them. I don't think it's going to mark the end of Moog, and they and remember the owners that uh, are still there, the owner operators and the people that are working at Moog are still going to own stock in the new company now. So, Paula, quick, real quick, I wanted to say I was driving through Asheville the other day and I saw that there is a Moog or Moog Museum. So maybe we ought to have a little walk through there in after hours uh, and kind of check it out. It's in Nashville? No, Asheville. Oh, Asheville. Asheville. Yeah, and, I, and I'm, I'm literally Carolina? 40 minutes yeah. away from there. So oh, yeah. We should, we should do that 100%. this summer. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Content for the future. Anyway, it is the top of the hour. and We're very excited today because uh, if you've been around office hours long, you know that we go out and do these big trade shows. And we just finished Cinegear as our latest of our trade show adventures. It was major fun. And for those of you who might be not be aware of what Cinegear is, once a year in Los Angeles, kind of the movie making and big equipment community comes together. Uh, during the pandemic, they, they were off and then they came back to one of the convention centers. But part of the magic of Cinegear is that it happens on studio lots, particularly the Paramount lot. So this year they were back on the Paramount lot and we got to go out there and, and see that. So you get to go through the big gates of the Paramount studios and kind of hang, hang out around all this amazing studio uh, circumstances and get to see all the hot gear. They do it both outside. There's a whole set on the Paramount lot that is kind of a uh, streets in New York thing. All sorts of gear is set up on those streets in these big movie sets. And then there are the big sound stages where there's tons of equipment inside and everybody gets a pass for the lot for the day and we can go around and see it. A lot of us went out there. I was lucky enough to be able to go out on Friday and just kind of hang out on the lot. And then we came back and did the live show here. So today is our day to discuss everything that happened at Cinegear. Uh, and I'm going to talk to some of the people, just kind of give your the impressions of some of the folks who came in for the panelist part of this to do that let's start with Alex Alex what were your what were your thoughts after Cinegear this year you know I think that it was I think it was a pretty big success for us um, you know we definitely took more ground you know, as far as figuring it out uh, I think that the I think that the after hours thing is starting to sneak up on being a really interesting platform um, now I admit that I was doing mostly setup so I'll, I'll be really interested to hear what people felt when they were watching it. Um, but I really felt like uh, it did show the difference between the live view that we use the next day and the cell phones that we use the day of the after hours because it was a lot of one frame per second occasionally and and things breaking up and everything else. So there were some challenges there. But I, I really liked the kind of, um, you know, more popcorn effect of of having uh, lots of things that we can cover. And I think that as we get better at that, I think that's going to be, um, you know, more, uh, we're definitely going to see more of the, uh, of, of, after hours kind of building up to where we can spend days doing that. And then it's all going to culminate in a stream. You know, I, I think that there is some point where this becomes a thing where there's the, the after hours is happening for the first day or two, and then it cuts to the stream. And some, at some point after hours might be going on at the same time as the stream. You know, there's a lot of different things that could happen there as we get, as we become more refined. Um, and as, as we figure out more of those pieces, but I think that the after hours um, process went really well. I will say that, that, um, 
Cinegear is so dense, you could stop at almost every booth and it would be interesting. Like that was the thing that was really fascinating about it. I haven't been there for 10 years and the technology has gotten so much better than the last time I was there, you know, maybe 15 years. I got horribly burned because the problem is it was outside and I got horribly burned, uh, you know, you know, just sunburned the last time I came. And every time I saw that it was available outside again, all I could think of was getting burned again. And so um, I didn't go for years. <laughs> like I was just like, oh, I don't need it. And it, it often conflicted with a, a, a big event in Cupertino that, that I, you know, so, um, so the, uh, uh, so, so I think that I haven't been able to see it for a long time. And the technology, because so much of the technology around filmmaking and, and production has gotten so much better, the the it, it has been it's gotten to be just pure eye candy. I mean, there's so many cool things. It's like the Central Hall in NAB, but that's the whole thing. Like, and it's like, and it's even more. It's even cooler than the Central Hall in NAB. Uh, so it is. It's just the easiest thing to shoot from a content perspective. It's the hardest one to shoot because it's outdoors. You know, it's outdoors and then it's in in basically Faraday cages, which are the the studios. And so it was an extremely challenging place to to shoot. If the content wasn't so good, I would never go back. You know, like it it, it is such a you know, I get that it's fun to be on the Paramount lot, but wow, is it hard to shoot? Um, you know, to to cover the stuff and it's, you know, grinding sun and and it's LA and you know, like all those things that you know, parking is a stressful moment. And so all those things, I'd much rather just go to a convention center and, and and watch the things. But what what sells it is just the incredible group of people that that show up and bring their bring their products. So I'll let some other people talk a little bit while I and then we'll we'll start showing some. I'll show a little couple slides. Sure. And uh, our two on camera hosts for this happen to be with us today: Tlaloc Lopez Waterman and Courtney Gooden. Courtney started us off by touring us through the back lot. That was fabulous. And then Tlaloc took us inside some of the big sound stages. So they've raised their hands. So Tlaloc, give us uh, give us your thoughts about it. Well, I had a lot of fun, uh, Bill, and, and um, I really appreciated the opportunity to do it. I thought for sure I was just going to carry batteries, but that's not what I, that's not what happened. Um, Surprise! So, <laughs> Welcome to but, office hours. <laughs> but um, but I, I do want to say that I I really really do I agree with you, Alex, that the the uh, the after hours thing is is a gem is a gem in the rough, and I think it would be really really cool to get that working better. I don't know how to possibly do that, but to get that to have more frame rate. Um, and then I would also say that I think we should do it in teams. There was one moment where we were all up um, <clears throat> near a, a lens company and I was talking to the to the people there because I was pretty interested in what, what I was looking at. And we had multiple cameras in after hours for people to look at um, at the same booth. And um, it was really fun. It was really, really fun. And I think... It, it would be great to get that working better. And I, um, I've been thinking about how to do that. It's probably, there's and probably some physical limitations, but <laughs> there's not, you know, like we're still figuring it out, you know, like the, the, you know, we're figuring out how many people can make it make sense and, and how many cover and how much coverage. But I think that, uh, I, I don't think that there's any reason for us to not do those things. I, I, you know, I think my goal is always to see how much, like, can we cover have six things ready to go or but maybe it's just three things ready to go and maybe it's you know and and again i, I think it'll get slowly more organized and and so on and so forth but yeah i, I think it it was uh um i really enjoy the 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 the, the organicness of it 
And one of the joys of their Courtney was one of our on-site reporters from there. And Courtney's been in the industry for so long and knows so many people that it was just fabulous watching him interact with some of these booth vendors. How did it feel for you, Courtney? Well, we got lucky this time. I've been to been going to Cinegear for many, many years. Um, and uh, we got lucky this time. The temperature wasn't killer, although the sun did come out in the afternoon and it made shooting a problematic, which we can talk to later on because of going from sunlight to shade and to inside a inside a soundstage where we were shooting uh, LED lights and lighting and booths where the lighting and the F-stop is completely different, moving back and forth. Um so there were those kind of problems. I think uh, we covered it pretty well, and I got to thank Bill for uh, holding down the fort and and Grant for holding down the fort. Uh, at, Grant as, did a fabulous at, job as the host, so uh, uh, so that they would dance while we moved on to the next uh, to the next uh, booth that we were going to shoot. I think a good setup, as Alex said, you know, I think uh, and, and uh, Talalik said also that. A good setup in the future to look for, to strive for, would be maybe two live views with two separate crews and uh, two cameras locally switched at each crew, sending that back to the main, to the mothership, so that we don't have to have, so Bill doesn't have to do the dance and, and vamp between the two, between booths as we move from booth to booth, so that the the two different booths could cover different, you know, areas in a in a trade show, for example. Uh, you know, you assign one crew to the left half of the hall or a different hall, and this crew to the other hall, and you divide it up so that you can ping pong between the two without having to do too much uh, vamping in between well, them. And 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 the, and the local uh, the local person who's running the live view could have just a simple ATM mini and switch between a close up camera or a B roll camera that could be getting inserts or reverses of the host versus the person being interviewed and switch between them. And that would be fed back to the mothership. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's I think that my we, idea. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I will say that the, part of the design of it was that not so much vamping, but I mean, and we have to work on this for the show, but it shouldn't be vamping, but adding more context. Like it, it there, the, the goal is to breathe a little bit so that we're not going from booth to booth, to booth, to booth, to booth, but we have a little bit of time to talk about what we just saw there. And I think we have to get better about how we do that. But I think that that is, you know, the that I think that, you know, the goal there is to have some experts that you get some time to to have them interact with that. I also, we had some technical issues that kept us from doing multi-camera, but I, I would prefer on the on the ground not to have a switcher <laughs> and to use four inputs. The live view that we had, uh, for some technical reasons, we didn't do it, but, but the live view we had is capable of sending four uh, feeds back to the mothership. And I'd much rather keep the production on the ground simpler rather than, I mean, I think that one of the things that we did um, that we'll, we'll show in a, in a little bit is, uh, is, you know, we had the, we created a wireless camera system completely. So that there was nothing coming back and there's a cart following it around cart, Courtney's cart. And I think that made a huge difference is lightening the load of that, of the camera operator. And I think we want to keep on lightening the ground load a little bit to make, to make that actually work. Mitchell, you had some thoughts? Yeah, as a viewer, I wasn't a participant. I was very impressed and proud uh, to see that our local uh, uh, presenters on the floor were asking very intelligent questions of the presenters at the uh, at the show. In fact, you could see their expressions on their faces, like when Courtney was discussing, uh, I think, the, uh, the way to rewrap a, uh, a boom pole, and Courtney went into great uh, detail about it, and then the person was like, wow or Talalik was discussing a, uh, a light instrument. And um, 
obviously knew what he was talking about. I think those are things where we can shine, not just technically in terms of how we shoot it and how uh, the quality is, but also how we uh, present ourselves when we're out there doing those interviews. As far as the uh, the close-ups and separate cameras, that'd be great if you could do that. Uh, the only suggestion I would make is that when you uh, begin the uh, uh, the dialogue uh, about where, where you are, which booth you're in, um, then you should push in on the uh, the person at the booth and the equipment. Therefore, uh, it's not a three-shot with the uh, a piece of equipment or product uh, as part of it, but the person that's talking about what it is that we're looking at, you just walk it in. But again, I don't know how easy it was to move that camera around or whether it was on a cart or whatever. So I liked it. It was great. Well, John, well, good job. Well done. Ronnie, you had some thoughts? Yep. Um, Multi-camera um, is really cool. Uh, having some overview uh, and, and uh, another guy or, or girl moving in and I get a close-ups uh, is really good. But I, uh, I think it's different uh, when we're doing the broadcast on YouTube and we, when we're doing after hours. Um, as a panelist, I would really like to have the, all the angles in, not a, a, like a, 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 a finished cut from the, from, the, from the floor. I would like to see all the angles so that I can use that to get the, the, the context uh, as a yeah, panelist. I'm not sure what the technical reason was that we did that because I, I expected them, I expected the raw feed to be in there for the panelists to see and somehow that didn't happen. So we'll make sure that that, that, that we, and if, if we're sending four feeds back, we'll definitely pump four feeds into the, uh, you know, um, all the feeds. If there's like two live views with, Whatever we'll send all the feeds into the into Zoom so that you can see everything that's going on. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I saw some frustration in myself when I couldn't look at the close-ups, and we were kind of in the chat and oh, can we have a close-up? Can we have a close-up? Yeah. And didn't get it. So, yeah. Courtney, you had a thought to follow up? Yeah, I agree with that. I, um, I was just going to point out a thing that really saved us on this is to appoint a field producer who goes ahead to the booth that we want to cover and goes to the next booth that we're going to be coming to next preps the people there, tells them that we're going to be doing a live show and we're going to be coming to them in about 10 minutes and we're going to, you know, let them know when we're live, we'll be set up and we're, you know, so that we don't just arrive at a booth out of the blue and they don't know who we are, what we do, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, our, our producers in the field did a great job with that for uh, uh, bringing us from uh, booth to booth and prepping the people in the booth for our arrival and, you know, yeah, Raj. Raj was sitting there with his. He had a, he had an outline of what we were going to do next, and we a lot of times we were having to pull things out, put things in, and uh, he was able to really, you know, just kind of keep us guided. You know, where we needed to go it was amazing. Having having a map was essential because it was so confusing on that back lot because <laughs> none of none of the streets are parallel, so you know they don't form really a grid. They form you know triangles and stuff, and it gets repetitive when you you get blocked by all the people. So they uh, it was essential. Alex, did you have something specific more than that, or did you want? Yeah, to I was going to show some slides. Oh, let's um, just, I, uh, we have I, one person here from the back end crew, yeah, Kirsten, yeah, had Kirsten, just raised her hand. So Kirsten, how did it go for you? Yeah, Kirsten, thank you. Okay, I hope you can hear me. Yes, I rushed in. Great. Good to see you. It went very well as we are a global crew. <laughs> so you already heard something from what happened on site. Uh, and so there, there were some people in the back end as well. I would have a little, um, some pages to show as well, uh, by, by a screen share if I can. Please do. So I would just try if it works. 
This is this so, will be cool. Yeah, go ahead. Is it fine? Okay. Yeah, we can I see, can't it. see you up. anymore. <laughs> That's life. All right. So you already heard about it because I was listening while I came back here. So we did some 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 streams into after hours. Um, the other panelists already talked about this, so that was really great. Because what happened in after hours was that we would were then able to um, see about 40 booths already on, on the Friday before we had the big show. So we had a prepared list of 200 plus, uh, 50 plus names with all the exhibitors. And what, what was really cool was that then in after hours on the Friday, we were really live able to uh, vote in Mukana about all these booths we already saw. And some of the things were so exciting that we said like, yeah, we would like to see more of this tomorrow. So all this voting we did in after hours was then uh, the the basic so so to speak for the run of show which would was then made during the evening for the next morning and then we had on Saturday we had our Cinegear show you already heard from Field Team and there are some people here who will share more about this so we had the Field Team the panel and the production crew and the four uh, hours YouTube stream that's where I was in the back end with uh, two other TDs um, yeah and a lot of other people from the crew. So what happened in pre-production? We were um, having a little sprint of two weeks this time with an all-hands meeting, field team meeting, EIC, and so on. And yeah, so some key things. This is not everything, but without this, it wouldn't work. It's really the communication, the logistics, having all the roles set up, um, having the field kit. Then we are all connected on comms, everyone who is on site, also the panel, the back end and so on. That's how we run it. And yeah, that's that was the key takeaways from me as I did some understudy in the pre-production and then was in the back end later. So when you watch the show, sometimes you don't get a sense of how much complexity there is in the back end, how many people are working and what they're doing to make this all come alive. And it was great to hear from that. We're going to go to Alex now. And Alex, you have your presentation? Yeah, yeah, and and I and I don't I, I'm just going to show some slides from the from the ground. But one thing to to, to point out is I think that Tala can tell us what we like. I think that we we take things for granted that kind of blow people's minds. I think there was a Tala. What was the the situation with the A one? Did was it was it in Chimera? They were yeah, asking, so I was at Chimera, and I was like, yeah, so you know, we're working on making sure that sound is happening. And I I I really loved when we got somewhere to just have thirty to sixty seconds to just kind of talk with the person about what we're doing and what's going to happen and 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 sort of waiting for the call that we were live and then we would go. It's a little longer on Chimera and I was said, yeah, we're working on making sure the sound is working and and he's like, "Where's your A1?" And I was like, "Oh, Manila." And he he just went blank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with that, you know. You know, you know so. And then, and then he, and then he recomposed himself and said, "Oh, that's cool." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's funny because it's yeah, every once in a while we just don't think about it. And having you know Richard available, Brian available, you know Richard Richard Lavery and Brian Chand and and Grant coming in, and 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 it really it, what I what I did what I was struck with during that day was how seamlessly we become global. You know, like it's not it's not just that we're we're talking about it. We, you know, we really are doing things that are very, you know, we don't doesn't we don't think anything about it. And I'm on comms and Mickey's telling me I got to do something or someone else is, you know, so Mickey's like going, you know, I need you to do this or to do that or whatever. 
and we're just kind of figuring it out together. And so we had, you know, b- between Manila and and uh, Australia and Ireland and and all the different in Germany and uh, you know all all these different folks that are all on the back end making this all work. And it, it, we are covering it at a level that no one else is covering it live. You know, like I think we, you know, while we're still in our what I would consider our infant stage of doing these co- this coverage, it's at a whole different level. Like it is not like nobody else is doing this kind of live coverage right now from those areas. If you look at, if you do Cinegear coverage in Google, just Google Cinegear coverage and see how high we end up you know, on, on that list. It's uh, for a long, for at least last week, it was at the top, you know? And so, so I think that, uh, I think that we're going to, um, and you know, we're still, I still feel like things are pretty rough. We're still figuring a bunch of pieces out, but, uh, but I think that, that we we're already doing, doing pretty well. Uh, let me, it's let me, so, show it shocks me so much to think, I just think of it as Kirsten, it's Kirsten Ostercamp. And then yeah. I go, she's in Germany and right. Ronnie's in Norway. Everybody is just all over the world, but it seems like such a community and it is so cohesive yeah. and they're such great people. So the um, so here's a couple slides here. This was at, the, at Jesse's house. Jesse wasn't very far away; it's closer than I was staying. Um, and uh, and so and Jesse had a great spot to kind of um, build up in and uh, and and figure it out. So it was very it was very comfortable. Um, and uh, so I was going to test this camera, but we didn't end up testing it. This was the Black Magic camera. Uh, we just ended up st- sticking with it. Now I brought my. I'll show you another one. This is the Sony FX30. The reason we didn't use it was because of the lens. And I just didn't, once we did the test shooting on the day before, I didn't feel like we were going to get, like, I felt like it was too long. It was 35 millimeter. I think with Jesse's, we ended up being a 16 millimeter, I think, um, on a, and, and I, or a 24, I think, a 24 on a. Yeah, it was a 2450, but we kept 20, it on 2450. And even that was probably a little longer than we wanted, but, but it was, but the 35 was def 35 on a super 35 was definitely not going to work. Like it was t- way too long. And I, did some research. I was trying to find a wider lens and Jesse had a great camera. So I figured we'll just use his camera instead of mine. Um, there's the live view setup. Um, I did, I finally got a, at, at NAB, the little things I, I, um, uh, at NAB, I, uh, we had just a backpack, you know, like a, that, that, the, that this, um, that the Scorpio was in, which is a little embarrassing given it's a $10,000 mixer to have it just kind of shoved into a, into a case into a bag. And it was very ergonomically super painful to wear, both of those things together. And so, um, so I got a proper, this is a K-Tech, um, uh, you know, a bag for, for the Scorpio. And what's really nice about it is that everything opens on every side. Like I can open things, get all, get everything to it. Um, one thing that I did, I have ordered that showed up today for this weekend is, uh, when you put it in the bag, you realize why there's right angle, um, XLRs, <laughs> everything's sticking out. So I got, I ordered a bunch of right angles for it this weekend. Um, anyway, uh, so, but this bag is great because it was able to hold the embedder as well as the wireless. Um, so that, that worked out well, this is the Scorpio and, you know, we could do a lot with less than that. If we wanted to, the main advantage of the Scorpio was that we were able to do the five one, um, we had a lot of control over the over the mixing, and it's got great preamps. Um, this is the camera setup. Uh, we'll, you'll see another couple angles of this, but this was at the we we did find you, we, a slight tan, tangent is is that it's nice to know where we can kind of meet and kit up. In this case, Astro Burger was uh, only a block away from the entrance, and so we all met at Astro Burger, and uh, we were because everybody was there for the conference. It wasn't weird for us to pull out a camera and start setting it up uh, and and talk about it there because it was there. So. Um, so what you saw here, what you see here is this is our, this is a, um, it's a V-mount battery uh, that we had here. And uh, this is a Ranger. 
Um, so the Ranger is a very high quality broadcast level transmitter by Teradek. And so this is the Ranger here that, that was our wireless uh, video. Um, and then we have this, uh, this brick and this brick powered the Ranger um, and also powered, I believe the, uh, it powered something else here. Oh, I think the monitor down here. Um, and so it's got a couple different outputs there. So DTAP to the Ranger was what we used there. DTAP to a, a two pin, which I think turned into a little bit of a drama because Tlaloc had to go find it. <laughs> so we were like, uh, you know, so to, to make that actually work. Um, there's Courtney. Uh, they wouldn't let us in the easy way. So we had to walk like 10 miles to get to the part that we needed to get to. And uh, and Courtney was now and Courtney brought this this little cart, which I looked at it and I was like, I don't know if we need the cart. That's when I, when I looked at that. And I thought that for about 10 seconds. And then we started putting stuff on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, I, why did I not think about having a cart? So, because um, I was thinking, oh, we'll carry it around. Or, or I was thinking, I should have had a, I should have gotten the back brace that you get with the, with the bag. And that would have never worked. Um, so anyway, so carts are now the thing. But the key is, is that nothing was wired to the cart and we didn't have to, we could, the camera could move wherever it wanted to. So the cart's like hidden here by having the camera uh, here, you see what Joaquin um, is, is uh, Joaquin is here and uh, he's, but he has his own backpack, but nothing's connected to that. So everything is, is, is wireless. We're using electrosonic um, wireless and we, a couple little hits here and there, but you got to understand this is incredible. Like most of the other transmitters that we would have had would have just ripped apart at this, at this event. There is so much wireless going on and so many things going on. I can't believe we even had any clean audio at all. Um, but we had, um, so we're using, uh, these are just SM58s along with the mic plugs. Um, and then the, uh, uh, anyway, so then, and then here are the top, these are the, the receivers for the, the Teradex, um, that we have here you can see another angle here. And so this cart just kind of, we were able to just kind of push around. We kind of used it as part of the block. You'll notice there's a lot of open space here. And this is because we have people here, people here. Um, we didn't have anybody here, but they were talking here. We built basically with everybody that was working, we kind of built a little uh, bubble. And so as, every time we went somewhere, everyone kind of took a place and formed a bubble around what we were doing. And our guys were pretty aggressive. <laughs> nice, but nice, but aggressive. You know, like, 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 no, you need to move around. And I'm always amazed. So always, there's always a couple people that just decide they, that no one's going to tell them what to do and they're going to walk through the camera. And I'm always like, wonder what you are like in production. <laughs> like to, to, to say that I'm, we're shooting and all you have to do is walk this way instead of through here. But there's always, there's always that person that does that. And you're just like, wow, I'll never, never want to work with you. Um, anyway, so uh, the, um, so here we have, uh, this is, I thought this was, this was pretty cool. And one of the things that really worked in, in a lot of ways was that again, Courtney and Tlaloc really knew their subjects. So what they were talking about, and I don't think that our our um, our guest here, this is an ETC, you know, I, Tlaloc was like really asking him deep questions. Like it's obvious that he knew Tlaloc knew what he was, what the uh, you know what the board does. And so I think it was really comforting comforting for him. Um, but you can see this the the kit kind of moving around here. Um, here you can see we we did find that we got in in all this this coverage here. Uh, we did. Um, uh, find that moving these electrodes up a little bit higher and getting those things. We're probably going to put these on a pole the next time, just get them up even away from our hardware um, to make it e even easier. But these were, these worked great. Um, and then, um, then you see the live view here. Uh, and then what was happening here is that we were embedding the audio. The audio was coming out of AES out of the, out of the Scorpio and then being embedded by a black magic uh, little box. 
uh, audio to SDI. And we could do that. We could use that box for both just using two mics, but we could also put six mics in if we want to do five one, which we did a little bit later. Um, here's another shot of that of the camera. So um, you can kind of see the, the it, it, it's relatively light. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't something that became a big um, you know that's what was great about taking away the the backpack and the, and everything else that the, the camera was able to move around very very easily um, and um, and we used a monopod here which worked out exceptionally well uh, I think this was um, this was Flawlux, uh monopod what was who makes that Flawlux? do you remember this is uh, Manfrotto. no no mine no, was no. Manfrotto. oh was it Flawlux okay. was I think it's called my cam it was like a yeah. hundred and and twenty nine dollars. <laughs> it was, awesome. it was better. I have a five hundred dollar Manfrotto that I was that I brought to use, and we ended up using Flawlux because the feet were bigger. So the feet were just a little bit bigger. It was a little bit more stable um, to to work with. Um, so that was the big big reason we chose that. Um, here again, you can see you know uh, Flawlux asking asking questions and us putting and again putting this in a place where a we got line of sight to the um, to our folks talking, but also. We're blocking this. This uh, a lot of it was paying attention to blocking any kind of side traffic that may occur, um, you know, in that in that process. And so those are a couple of behind the scenes photos of of what the the on the site crew uh, looked like. And I think we're probably stacking up some questions. We are. We got a bunch of questions, and I just don't want to acknowledge our fearless leader Brian Shand, who was the producer Amazing. essentially for this unbelievable job so many meetings so much preparation to have this come across the way it did so a shout and, out to brian who happens to have our first question here oh and, well, and one I thing was... i want i wanted to say is that one of the things i love about working with brian is that he's so calm like it's always like this <laughs> calmly like no matter what we're doing like okay we're gonna do this all in two weeks and this is what it's gonna look like and he's like okay now we're going to do, you know, like it's just, it's just like, and it's just this, this, call. and, and during it, it's, it's like you're talking to NASA, which makes production so much more enjoyable. And, and so, uh, just really, really it's fantastic. Awesome. It's like, okay, this thing is on fire. Brian's like, okay, so what you need to do is you need to go over here. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm find, fine. <laughs> try to find something that you can put it out with. Yeah, I yeah, was so, freaked yeah. out. Now I'm calm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. Why did this happen? So, uh, Mitch, take us away into our first question. Yeah, if uh, Brian Shand was here from Sydney, Australia, he'd read it more like, who is our target audience for these yeah, types of productions, and how can we better serve them? Tlaloc's going to start us off. So I think, you know, having never been to Sydney Gear myself, um, I, I, or to NAB, or to, I mean, the only real con conventions that I've ever been to was USITT, because it was part of my more direct vertical, right? It was about theater. And so I think the target audience are people who don't, don't know what might be there for them. And um, that's, that's exciting to me is to be able to sort of uh, show, show people more of what might be available for what they're doing. Alex? Yeah, when when we go to these events, I mean, I've and I thought about this for years because I've been covering these events for twenty years in some way, shape, or form. And when we go to these events, it's you, you, it's all encompassing. You're there in the morning. You're there all day. You're walking around. You're absorbed by it. Our goal down the road is to get to that point where someone could, if they wanted to, sit down at eight a.m. and there's twelve hours of content. Like when you're talking about who we're trying to, what we're trying to do, and how to better serve them. There's interviews and we're talking and we're jumping from booth to booth and we're trying to talk about what the what the, the the main trends are and 
and we're going to, you know, we're showing you maybe, you know, hundreds of booths eventually over like a four day event. And, you know, and all of that we're trying to get to right now, we're doing this with, you know, no budget and no one knows who we are. And so we, we kind of are scrapping, um, you know, what, with what we're doing, each one of these gets better and better because of the great work the team's doing, we're starting to figure some of those things out. And so, um, so I think that, uh, but our goal really, when I think about these, uh, our target audience are people like us that are, that are not able to go, you know, and, and, you know, how do we build a conduit, uh, for them so that they, you know, the, for the many people who didn't have time, didn't have a visa, didn't have the budget, didn't have, you know, all those things. How do we make these, these events more accessible, uh, to, to them and, and have them at least see right now, it's how do we have them see at least a smattering of it? the goal down the road is to have them feel like they are, were almost there, you know, and you'll see us, you know, we're playing around with, um, in the HDR 360, you're going to probably, there's going to be some point where we, if you put a headset on, you'll be able to, you know, <laughs> wander around with us, uh, and, and see those things as well. So there's a lot of different things that we'll probably work on over time. Courtney. Yeah, I think the target audience is different for the different shows. Obviously, that uh, NAB's target audience is more uh, television production, live television production. You know, so you get television cameras, you get uh, audio uh, manufacturers of wireless equipment, etc. Um, whereas Cinegear is geared mostly for theatrical film production, or what used to be film production, but theatrical uh, movie production. So you get the the expensive cranes and camera support and uh, grip and electric equipment that's used on motion picture sets uh, versus live television or sports television, et cetera. I was kind of disappointed in that um, this year at Cinegear, Cinegear really rarely has a lot of audio equipment at it. There was only one audio manufacturer that I think we saw at Cinegear, which was Deity. And we didn't see sound devices. We didn't see any of the other major manufacturers of film sound equipment. So I was kind of disappointed there. And uh, what used to be, and they stopped doing it because the shows got so expensive, but the sound rental houses, uh, professional sound rental houses and camera rental houses used to have booths. Uh, I think B&H had one at Cinegear and they have one at NAB. But beyond them, a lot of the smaller uh, rental houses uh, have dropped out of those uh, those conventions because the booth space has just gotten to be so expensive because that was a nice place you could go to uh, and see a variety of different manufacturers equipment in a single booth. And you could talk to somebody about the latest, you know, audio recorder, et cetera, that came out uh, without having to go to the manufacturer's booth uh, if they were even there. So I kind of miss that. But And when we go to SIGGRAPH, of course, it's going to be all about graphics and graphic computers and 3D modeling, et cetera. So uh, different audience for, for each individual trade show. So, uh, you know, we'll have to make sure we advertise that and cater to the audience that is, you know, required for that particular show. Ronnie. Uh, what I found intriguing with this show was that uh, we had time to look at all the smaller vendors or more specialized vendors and not only go with the flow with the big uh, brands and, and the big booths. Uh, and, and this was shown the, the day before when we did, did the, the walkthrough. Uh, there was a lot of interest in, in looking at the specialized things. And so, so um, this is something that we, we should really be aware of and, and, uh, and, and take to notice when we are going to the other shows as well. It seems that uh, people are uh, very interested in those kind of special things. Alex, you had a fault? 
Yeah, I think that uh, when when it's a big company, like for instance, Blackmagic didn't release anything new. They were at Cinegear to answer questions and interact with folks, but there's no reason for us to cover something that there's nothing new. For us, the smaller booths are more interesting to do new because no one ever sees them. You know, like so so we can go to all of those and show things because uh, they're not they're not as widely um, not you know acknowledged. And so so I think it's interesting. I also you know I think of worth slinging bits against the screen, and to me, everything that you're seeing us cover are different versions of that Seagraph or Cinegear or NAB or IBC. They're all slinging bits at, at you know sl- slinging little bits of light at a screen, and, and so it's we're not. I think that we may still experiment with other things. We're going to experiment with a, a football game over the weekend. Um, and uh, and so we're we're going to experiment with other coverage and other things to do. But our main focus of what we're going to do is people that are interested in, you know, these these um, anything that has to do with graphics or video or audio. Um, I, by the way, I think that the audio issue that really showed up was that um, uh, when AES bonded with NAB, um, and then you have Nam in the morning, in in not in the morning, in the in the spring. I think it just took up a lot of energy. All the sound folks said, "Well, that's the easiest way for us to get to everybody." Mitchell, the other uh, thing that I saw at City Gear that was neat. Again, I'm just a viewer like anybody else. Uh, was the authenticity of some of the uh, people that had booths? There's one gentleman that was showing off uh, a gimbal, a camera gimbal with uh, Courtney. They could turn 360 and any, you know, get all kinds of crazy. I mean, that is a breakthrough way to shoot something that we didn't didn't exist before. And it came from probably somebody that worked on uh, films and uh, just had this, uh, you know, wherewithal to create the uh, the rig. Uh, it seemed very authentic to me and cutting edge because it wasn't a big name company. Let's go to the next question. Liberty White from Atlanta, Georgia. The production around City Gear gave us another Office Hours global live show design. I enjoyed the intimacy of it. What was the motivation? Show size, crew, or trying something new? Start with clock. I think a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen in our group. And so the motivations are different. And and also the te- the technology and equipment is different with wherever a particular show may be. You know, you may have... um. You may have a bunch of people that have XYZ, and then on another show, you have a, a whole different set of uh, uh, people that have a whole different set of equipment. Like IBC was a whole different set of equipment, different different people, different ways of thinking. So I think one of the things that's beautiful about this is that it's not going to be the same every time. Um, so, you know, maybe it'll be more of the same every time as we go forward, but there's something about the fact that we're coming together and pulling from a group of folks when it comes to to work, equipment, and thoughts about a particular production, uh, Alex. Yeah, and I, and I think that we're going to be experimenting a lot for the rest of the year. So you're going to every show is going to be pretty different than the the show the last show before it. And I think that one of the things that we're trying to do is find the things most people don't take the chances to do that because they've got a bunch of sponsors and they have to do a bunch of things and they they're trying to minimize the impact of of it on their of what it takes to do. And we're throwing lots of people at it. And like no one's throwing the kind of numbers of people and gear and everything else that we are um, into these into the coverage of these what would be considered generally a smaller show. This isn't like a G a, you know car show or something. And so so I think that we um, uh, we're trying to reinvent it. And reinventing it, part of it is, is to, with no budget, you know, other than what people are willing to put in. Um, but, but the, you know, I think that we're, uh, 
I think we're experimenting with that and you're going to continue to see that experimentation. Um, we've got some plans. I got some ideas for NAB. I'm trying to see, not NAB, but a C-graph take it another step forward and um, and then we'll um, see, see where we go with that. But I think that it's really figuring it out. Um, and and I think you'll see us splatting things against the wall for the rest of the year. And then it'll start to settle. So in 2024, um, I think we'll start to settle on, this is a format we like, because we also have to prove ourselves. We have to show people, hey, this is what we're doing because that's easier for us to, to get gear and to get you know eventually sponsorships and so on and so forth. Uh, we have to prove that we can actually execute it. And so we're getting closer, you know, we're doing better, better content that way. Um, and so, so I think that that's, that's also a big piece of it to, to kind of build up that process. But by, I think by 2025 is when, you know, I think will be the thing at most of these events, you know, the coverage that people want to be part of. Courtney. Yeah. I think the logistics, the ahead of time planning that went into this, uh, in, into Senegir, was great and and Kirsten, thanks for coming up with that uh, that great presentation of of how everything worked and and the logistics involved in getting everything to the live show day. Uh, that worked pretty well, I think. Uh, uh, the thing we were flummoxed with is on the the pre shoot day where we were all wandering around with our cell phones is that when you're on a soundstage coverage, cell phone coverage is not very good if you've just got a single carrier and each each person wandering around has a different phone cell cell carrier. So some were stuttery, some were good. You know, it uh, it's kind of a, 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 a hit or miss in, on the uh, on the opening day, on the pre-show day. But on the show day, you know, the live view worked uh, gangbusters for us and, and it came out great. Uh, and being able to think on your feet, you know, the as much as you plan and plan everything out, then some little missing cable or like Alex said, you know, the lens that he chose was not the best one. We have to switch midstream, you know, right before the show, we're switching to a different camera. So that kind of created a different, different problems in the field with, you know, okay, we need different connectors. Oh, we need a different monitor. We need this and that, but being able to come up with the things in the field from the field crew that just happened to have the things with us that they needed or knew where to get the things that we needed uh, to make it happen at the last minute uh, was really, uh, really, really spoke to the the competence of the field crew that we had there. Yeah, the serendipity of it was was Talalik <laughs> went out and found the cables, and Jesse had another camera, and uh, you know there was a bunch of things that all just kind of you know clumped together there that weren't well. Did you have another thought, no, or no, is that, that no, you're done? Okay, let's uh, move on to the next question. Here's Brian Shan from Sydney, Australia, asking. What field kit has been of value in these productions and which products would you like to try out for future shows? Tlaloc's going to help us start out. So, you know, after having utilized my 6K for so long with plugged into AC power and then noticing that its, it's onboard battery dies in maybe 10 minutes, <clears throat> I was wondering, how are these cameras used? So... For this project, I purchased a V-mount system, um, and um, I'm really excited that I have it. It's becoming a really useful thing for me um, in in multiple ways. Um, I'm actually running my because I'm having problems with the power supply for my ATEM, so I'm running my ATEM right now off of one of my V-mount batteries, um, and uh, it's it's just a, a super powerful way to to work. And I think. Um, I'm going to probably expand that part of my kit. So that's a big one for me. Alex? Courtney's cart in the 
battery, the big battery at the bottom that supplied AC to a lot of our stuff, we would have never made it through the four hours without that big battery. So there's a bunch of things we learned really quickly, like, oh, we're going to need to do that in the future. Um, obviously, the Live View and the Electrosonics have done really well. The Scorpio has done well. The um, the um, I think that the um, the bat, you know, again, the V mount batteries have been have been great. The Teradex have worked really; they worked really, really well. Um, so all of the things that we're kind of coalescing around has has been making a lot of this easier. I would love to in a in another environment to you know the electrosonics are great. I'd love to mix the electrosonics, the mic plugs, with um, some of the sound devices transmitters to to do for the ambisonic. Um, so I'm going to see what we can do about that, Mitchell. I'm real interested in how we may change our rig, depending on the uh, uh, the show we do, like SeaGraph for graphics or uh, NAB uh, AES this fall, uh, where it's audio. Would there be any changes that you would need to make, maybe that would uh, you know help support that particular show's uh, um, spotlighted products? Rami. Uh, I think the ambisonic that uh, Alex spoke about is uh, something that I really expect to be uh, evolving uh, through these uh, uh, productions. Uh, another thing is um, uh, for, for the uh, for the after hours um, when we are just roaming around the area. I think uh, looking more into the uh, DJI uh, uh, Osmo Mobile, the OM five or six or whatever uh, together with uh, with the zoom could be a really a really good thing to you know have stabilized really good pictures and you go up uh, against and the focus is working and everything is perfect audio is a problem then so let's go to the next question next question in from roscoe jones in madison indiana please describe the field team roles and how was the communication on the ground amongst that field team uh, Tlaloc's going to help us start. So I, I have to start by completely shouting out uh, to Raj, who was essentially our um, our how how would you put it? Field our leader producer. on the, our leader yeah. on the ground, field field producer on the ground, and and he made us feel he made me. I'm just going to speak for myself. Feel comfortable at any moment that I didn't have to think or worry about where I was going. <laughs> and he would point at a booth that I would walk over there. <laughs> and then and when I leave, I, I was walking to the next one and try not to forget to get, get the mic from the interviewee. <laughs> um, but uh, I really appreciated that. Then we also had Joaquin, we had Jesse, we had, um, and, and both of those uh, fellows did camera work. Um, and then we had Max. Um, Max helped us carrying... Um, a very a variety of things and helped us keep people out of the camera shot and was really really clutch in that in in those ways and was really excited and happy to be there. Um, and um, I felt like my role was I was uncomfortable with the role in front of the camera and it was new to me and that was a good thing. But I am comfortable with being a, the kind of person that is like okay, what needs to be done? And so uh, I felt like that was that was w where I where I also was, was, um, part of the process is, you know, putting things together, carrying things, making sure I could go find cables. Uh, I'm really good at driving around LA as it turns out, but, um, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, um, uh, so, you know, it just, I just, um, I just thought it was, it was pretty cohesive in that way. And it was really a lot of fun. That's a resume item. I'm really good at driving around LA. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, most of our communications amongst the ground crew was just talking to each other because we're standing, you know, within a few feet of each other. We did have comms and we did use Unity comms uh, for the presenters, uh, Tlaloc and myself, so we could hear 
uh, the program feed of Bill from the Zoom call, but we could not hear because of mix minus coming back to us. We couldn't hear ourselves or the person that we're interviewing in our comms. So we just had to be close enough to them and we could only use comms in one ear because if we put comms in both ears, uh, we wouldn't be able to hear the person we're interviewing because their feed is not coming back to us. So that was slightly problematic, uh, but I think it worked out okay. Well, we would have hurt each other. We would have hurt ourselves yeah, back right. like a half we a second later. It would have been rough. Exactly. The delay, that makes minus had to be in there because they couldn't feed program back to us. Uh, but locally, you know, what we might have in the future is a local contact that comes out of the Scorpio or, or whatever we're using for audio mixer so that we hear the mix that's going up to them. Uh, mixed in with our comms coming back from them, which doesn't have any of the program audio in it. So we could hear how, how you know, I, I could hear when I have the mic too low without having Mickey uh, shout through a third person, hold the mic closer, Courtney. So, uh, you know, communication like that would be helpful uh, without interrupting, you know, what we're listening to. And um, so that uh, that worked pretty well. I think uh, feeding the program audio back to us uh, so that we could hear the handoffs was great. So that we didn't have to have a second, a third person pointing to us when we were on, et cetera. We knew when we were on and we could take the handoff and give the handoff back to uh, Bill or Grant, whoever was hosting at that moment in time. The other thing I wanted to say on the previous question, but unfortunately it was locked. The thing that I think was a problem too is the the camera on a monopod was great. And a show like this, because you could move amongst the crowd, it was kind of heavy to hold. And the poor camera operator, I really felt for because it couldn't stand up on its own. And unfortunately, the little legs at the bottom were really not strong enough to hold that thing up without fear of it falling over. So you you never had a free hand. The camera operator always had to have his hand on that camera for seven hours uh, or however long we were on. So that was kind of a problem. You couldn't relax, get a, get a drink of water or something. If you had to get something out of your bag, you had to hand it off to somebody else and they had to hold it. So having something that would we could lock the camera into when we're not shooting uh, would have been a handy thing to have so that uh, the camera operator could relax for a few seconds. And I think we could rig the 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 uh, cart to do that. You know, just have yeah, something we could rig a, a holder on the cart to mm-hmm. to to drop it onto so that that uh, you could walk away from it. Or when we're moving from place to place, we can move as a cohesive uh, band of brothers. Yeah. Let's go to the next question. From Talalik Lopez Waterman in Brevard, North Carolina, Bill, could you report how it felt to be both in the field and on the panel? Yeah, it was a real help. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pop to another, uh, to a Cinegear uh, shot here. Uh, one of the small pieces of equipment we got to look at there while I talk you through a little of this and real quick. Um it was hugely important to me to be oriented, to get a sense of the host show. Uh, when I was hosting the next day, kind of knowing where to go out, where people were, um, gave me more things to talk about when it was time to stretch a little bit. Um, in the back end, always when we're kind of inventing this, we don't have things specifically set up so that we know exactly where we're going next. And we have to be very flexible about all the things that are happening. So there was a good little bit of padding when I would get in my ear from Laura, you know, it, 10 more seconds and then we've got to go out and I'd have to stretch a little. Um, that having been there the day before and knowing what was happening to see things like you're seeing right now and to know what area we in, what are the trends of the show, I just found that very comforting because I had more things to talk about. Um, 
And then just the whole backend team doing their amazing job of keeping us oriented. The communications, it was so critical. Uh, having Laura there, having uh, Brian in the background, knowing that you were never entirely alone. That was a huge part of being able to pull anything like this off. It is truly a teamwork effort. And I am just gobsmacked that I get to work with such people day in and day out. Let's go to the next question. Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas asking, this is the first time that we've locked questions and used the system as a strictly voting queue during the Friday and after hours. Was this successful or did it contribute to less questions on Saturday? Look, how did it feel to you? It felt um, a little bit like the question flow was low. Um, and I, I was wishing for there to be more questions from the audience so that I could tell um, what they were interested in instead of just doing what I was interested in, which is what I ended up doing. Um, but, uh, but so I think maybe if there's a, a mix between those two methodologies, that would probably be a good, a good way to go. Yeah, I felt a little bit the same thing. I remember from the host seat, it was, um, can we get something in from this section on the left? We're also, uh, and then get it out to the field. And there seemed like a little bit of delay, but these are things we'll work out as time goes along. It was, it was experimental. Let's go to the next question. From Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois, regarding audio, did you use any noise assist tech to control the background noise? Alex, help us out. And we just use SM58s. <laughs> so they just have, they have a lot of off-axis rejection. I mean, the one, the one cha the challenge with SM58s is that you really have to hold them up. So people moved them down, it was problematic. But if they hold them up to their, to their mouth, it cuts out everything else. Uh, let's go to the next question. Talalik Lopez-Waterman and Brevard, North Carolina. Alex, is there a way of getting into after hours that is supported by more technology beyond our phones? Yeah, Alex. I mean... We're working on it. Uh, you know, there's the, the problem with bonding in in uh, WebRTC is that the frames get reordered and so things break up and there's a lot of issues. So bonded cellular doesn't really work. What we really need to do is have, you know, Wi-Fi, you know, like the problem is Wi-Fi signals, but that, that, that are with APs and those will break up, but they'll break up a lot less than the cellular. Um, and then potentially a place, you know, again, what we're working on for NAB is trying to find it. See, we try to do this for Cinegear, but they just wanted us to pay for a booth, <laughs> which I couldn't afford this time. Um, but having a, a home plate. So we're working on that for, for Seagraph of give us a booth space that we can have that people, people can come to. Not everybody can do that, but some people can. So the idea is to break it up where we have really clean feeds from that one area. Um, another thing that we could be doing um, with the Teradex is if we get a hard line into Seagraph, for instance, we can have zero latency from the Teradex back to a transmitter that goes into. So then we're able to now have that real time. The, the live view can get very good, and we could definitely use the live view and insert it into op, into it. And we would just let it break up a little bit by going down to like half a second. So you could interact with someone on the live view. If we turn it down, it just won't be as clean as we do with our current one. So, but it would be probably much better than what we're getting with. Uh, cellular phones. And so I think that, you know, the, and that's a good, we'll see things the day before too. So I expect us to use the live view a lot more during Seagraph, um, you know, during the after hours, that'll be one of the cameras that we roam around with. Look. Yeah. And I thought your, your point, I think it was Ronnie who said about having it some sort of gimbal process. Cause I, I did hear some comments about, about being a little seasick from some of the walking. 
Um, and especially low frame rate. Yeah, with right with low frame rate. Um, so I think that would be a really good addition uh, for the after hours. And I, I do think we should put a lot of a lot of sort of um, crowd effort into making the after hours portions of these of these um, coverages much much better uh, because I think I think there's something there. Let's go to the next question from Robert Linkrum from Belmont Shore, California. Alex, uh, have you mentioned getting right angle XLRs for your Scorpio? Are the right angle XLRs simple plugins? Can you give us some detail? Yeah, I Alex. ran out to find them. <laughs> I ran out for a second while everyone was answering questions. This is it. It's just a really short little. Uh, it's it's a right angle that's going to pop in, and I uh, I realized that now that I popped it up, I got. I think I have the. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so this is going to pop in, um, and uh, and then we have the output here. So, which I think is actually, I think I might have gotten backward ones, which is interesting. It's like I just pulled them, literally pulled it out of the bag, and I think I think they're backwards. But anyway, but the point is, is that they're a little right angle that's here um, that that you uh, that you pop it in. So that's that's how that works. Anybody, real quick, Mitchell. Yeah, you can also uh, buy them where they can reverse their direction on the uh, right angle. Well, you don't want. I mean, yeah. Anyway. Courtney, real quick. Yeah, if you go to Sweetwater, you can see these that are forty-five bucks for a three-footer. With uh, they're low profile, so they don't have the strain relief coming out the side, and and uh, you can rotate the uh, angle that the uh, the cable comes out depending upon where in the bag it's going to sit. Ronnie, real quick. Yeah, like it's all uh, already been said. Uh, the the no trick ones can be turned, and you decide uh, what angle it is. Let's get to the next question. Jesse Schwartz, Los Angeles, asking, I'd love to see some time-lapse from Sinegar Streets of New York. Can Jesse screen share and show us some? Jesse, did you get any time-lapse? I thought you guys would never ask. Thank you. <laughs> so, yes, I did. Do you see the screen? Yeah, we do. You're yeah. all set. All right. This is from uh, Insta360X3 on a 10-foot selfie, Paul. So for those of you who've never been to Cinegar to the Paramount lot, the, the entire back lot around all the gigantic enclosed studios are these facades that uh, look like parts of New York or, or other big cities from the east. So it, it makes Cinegar pretty unique is that all the booths are set up around these huge facades. So both of these were shot with one frame every four seconds. So I probably left the selfie pole with the camera there for about an hour for each of those 20-second videos. The funny thing was, Alex asked, and it was a good question, he's like, you really feel safe leaving your camera there unattended for an hour? I'm like, hey, it's the streets in New York. What could go wrong? <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. But my exactly rationale, same population. my rationale was it was right next to about a hundred thousand dollar Ari that my <laughs> little five hundred dollar camera was not going to be as tempting. So it survived. Alex, I'm going to let you make the call. Should we go a little bit over? Do you want me to close yeah, out on a little time? over? We can go. A little yeah, over. I think it's it's a kind we'll, of a big day. Yeah, we'll go quickly. All right, let's get to the next question. 
Michael Flotron from Portland, Oregon. I'm currently looking at bonding solutions to cover a road mile in a downtown area. Would you consider the live view as the best solution for this, or are there other practical options with a medium budget? Alex seems to feel like the live view was a huge uh, I mean, ad for so us. There, there are other, you know, um, so uh, Keenan Campbell can come on and talk about his his solution, which is there. So there are other solutions that are really, really great. So and um, uh, uh, so I think that that, you know, there are some bonded solutions. But as far as a video, I want video to go in and I want video to come out somewhere else. The live view is the easiest one to use. If you're looking for overall IP coverage, there's a lot of other options. And really, the, the thing about the live view is remember that you can take a um, you can hook a, a Starlink to it. So you can have a live view getting its Ethernet from a Starlink. Um, and then that's going to really stabilize that a lot. Um, especially if you're at a parade, the live view still may break down because there'll be too many people using the the um the cellular points. But but the the so those that mixture is I think probably the most effective. Next question. Douglas Carmichael. Was there a master control room or similar central control points similar to Super Saturday? Courtney? Yeah, Alex was our man behind the curtain because he knew how the live view all worked and how to boot it, reboot it, and also all the Scorpio. So he was our A1 and our video engineer in the field. And he was listening on headphones to the microphone. So he knew when we were getting hits on the audio and, and he was the man behind the curtain for almost everything and didn't appear on camera because we couldn't lose him from his important position and controlling everything that was going back to, of course, the real master control in, uh, where was it in, where Center were we coming? Australia or well, whoever was controlling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whoever was switching back at the at headquarters. Alex, yeah, the final. Yeah, the problem was is that at the last minute, the morning of the event, at 6 a.m. in the morning when we were getting set up, I made a, a, a right turn on what I wanted to do with the kit. Um, I was frustrated by a couple pieces of what we were doing, and I felt like we needed to make a, a again, and I wouldn't do this in a normal job, but I felt like it'll greatly improve the quality of the show, and we just don't have what we need to do X, Y, and Z. And so I made that that shift, but that meant that I pieced it all together. I put the whole thing together and trying to hand it off to someone else, I felt like it would take half the day, you know, because I, I knew how, where all the, uh, where all the pieces were going. And I just didn't feel like I could hand it off quickly enough to somebody else and I better just manage it. So that's, that's how I got, that's how I started pushing the cart, which was fine. It was great. I thought the Tlaloc and, and Courtney did a great job. Our last question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana, asking, if you've never been to Cinegear before, do you now want to go every year? Javier, how do you feel? Feel totally, and it's not only because uh, I felt like standing, uh, like sitting in the commentator's booth after being inside the field for the NAB, uh, but also as I said when we were in the transmission, uh, I think this is the safari for the Sioux that are all the other conferences, and I'll, I love backlog tours and studio tours, so I'll definitely be there next time. Tlaloop? Yeah, my uh, my budget is not thanking me, but. Yeah, I'm definitely going back. <laughs> That's the problem. You see so many things you want. Alex, wrap it up. Yeah, I, I'm definitely going to go more often. I had taken some time off and I, I, I think I just forgot how cool it is. But I think it also, it's not just that I forgot how cool it was. I, uh, it's gotten way cooler. Like it, it is just the coolest, the most eye candy for production um, in that, that happens, I think, pretty much anywhere in the world as far as 
denseness, this that every booth is like, oh, I really need to spend some time here. This looks really cool. Um, so I think that that's, it's just, it's just a great conference. I, I get a little tired of the sun, um, but, uh, but, I, but I do think that it's an amazing, um, amazing uh, conference. Courtney? Yeah, I've been going every year for many years. And uh, lately, you know, I, I kind of dropped off for a couple of years because uh, the sun is just a killer. And, and when <laughs> I find a good sunscreen that doesn't make me look like Pennywise the Clown, <laughs> I, I come back. Yeah, not zinc oxide, I'm afraid. Um, yeah, I would go back and do this again. In a, you know, really quickly, last shot that I'll show you. This You probably saw this before. You saw the crane, but look at that trailer behind it. That was the most amazing production trailer I have ever seen. Not only does it have all the standard grip gear, not only does it have a ton of lighting, but there's actually a conference room on the second floor of this truck that people can have a meeting after you're on, out on location or something like that. You just don't get to see these kind of things anywhere else other than a show like Cinegear, so it's just yeah, fabulous. It had a grip way. cappuccino room in it, I think. It didn't. <laughs> That's right. It's just just amazing to see what the uh, the people with serious budgets for these multi 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 million hundred million dollar movies uh, have available to them. All right, thank you everybody who participated in today's coverage. We had a great time at Cinegear. Uh, we will be back. Let's see tomorrow how office hours works. So if you're interested in behind the scenes of how we put the show together every day, our next update takes place on tomorrow's show. Saturday, normally education, and I think uh, while school's out, we're pivoting to a, a focus on accessibility. Is that correct, Alex? And and can you tell us a little bit about what's going to be happening? Yeah, so we're going to start off with etiquette um, and talk about it. We have uh, we're really taking some big strides there, so we're going to be doing um, both. Um, I'll be on the show with uh, with uh, a lot of new new faces talking about uh, accessibility. Uh, Laura is going to be part of that. Um, and, a, and, a, and a, quite a few other people. You're going to see us also experiment on the YouTube stream with um, producing a ASL. We, we, um, we, we've partnered with a group to, to basically put ASL in, into the system, and you'll see some, some uh, more information about that. And so we'll be doing that for the next seven weeks. We'll be talking about accessibility for the next seven weeks. Expect it to be a little, um, you know, you get to see the beginnings of this. And when we look back on it a year from now, we'll be like, wow, you know, this, was, this seemed really complicated, but we're going to, um, you know, and I'd highly encourage other folks from the panels that we've had in the past to jump on with us and, and be part of the little ride that we're going to take here. But we're looking at over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at how many accessibility features we can pack into a show. So it's kind of a summer project. Um, it, it will create some chaos, you know, we expect uh, as we as because we've no, you know, we've never really done it. And it's it's, you know, we're, we're going to have both. Um, you know, people using ASL as panelists, as well as ASL as an output. And so there's a lot of us figuring out what does that look like and how does that work and, and everything else. And, and not many people do this on a regular basis. And we're going to try to move it to some, some version of mastery in seven weeks. And so, so it should be a really, really interesting ride. Very exciting to come. Our huge thanks to everybody involved in this, all the people who were at Cinegear, and just all the people who are producers on this show, all of you who ask questions. This show literally can't happen without your participation, and we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, the panelists who bring expertise every day to office hours and answer all of your questions, thank you to all the panelists uh, today and every other day who show up to do this. And of course, the crew in the back end. It's great to see Kirsten's face here because we see people like her every day gathering together to make this show possible. Most of the time they don't end up on the show per se, but they are mission critical to bringing this to you. Thank you all. After Hours takes off right now, and we will see you tomorrow. Thanks for watching.
left a string of bananas behind us. As we bananas. Oh, I miss bananas. Uh, I knew we were late. 587 million. You didn't just miss one banana. You missed 587 million bananas for scale. Millions and millions. So much potassium. <laughs> Three times around the earth. Yeah. That would yeah. leave some waste behind. Yeah, so many, so many bananas. But it's better than when we forget to say million. It's just 587 million. Yeah, you know, like those are giant bananas. It's like bananas the size of Nebraska. It's giant. I need to go to McJourney and see if I can build a giant 